Hello, shopkeep. I'm shopping for some tires today. Oh, lovely. Well, we have these tires over here. These are good for snow driving. Okay. Uh, what about these ones here? Oh, the, these these are good for off-roading. I need something that's good on streets of fire. I don't want to see an ordinary film. I want to see something extraordinary. Your sacrifice completes my sanctuary of 1,000 testicles. You ever feel as if your mind had started to erode? What the... Let's rock indeed. Welcome to 1,000 Wives of Weird, the podcast where we discuss weird film. I'm Billy Martell, and with me as always is... Brad Hefner. And today we are discussing a, a weird... Film from the 80s. We're going right back to our first episode. We're, we're, going, we're back going back to 1984, which is yeah. the year of Repo Man and Buckaroo Banzai. And Buckaroo Banzai. We're going back to the era of tracks. Mm, tracks. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a film with where the plot, described by its director Walter Hill, is the Queen of the Hop has been kidnapped by the leader of the pack and Soldier Boy comes home to do something about it. Yeah. Streets of Fire, a rock and roll a, parable. A rock and roll fable. A rock and roll fable. Do you want to take that again? No, I'll I'll just take leave that mistake in there. Okay, rock and roll fable. It's a rock and roll fable. One of yeah. the reasons why I bought the movie. Mm-hmm. Think I, I mean, what, with with a tagline like that, how can you go wrong? Yeah, it's yeah. very briefly. Aside from Walter Hill's wonderful summation, Wonder- how would you describe this plot other than that? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's a rock and roll starlet gets kidnapped by mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe. Yes, and her. Ex-Paramour comes back into town to fight the baddies and rescue her. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of great music. And great some, music. It's it's in a fantasy world. Where everyone's... It's sort of like... If you've ever seen the film Brick, which we need to yeah. bring on the show at some point, where it's in high school, but everyone's acting like adults. This is sort of the opposite, where it's like... It's not in high school, but everyone's acting like they're in high school. One of the writers, Larry Gross, com- said that this movie was an expansion on the world in the movie The Warriors. I can see that. Which I have not seen. Is another movie like Brick that I have not seen. But an- another description of the film's vibe from, again, the director and writer Walter Hill said that the film came out of a desire to make what he thought was the perfect film when he was a teenager. Yes. Things that were great then, which I still have great affection for, custom cars, kissing in the rain, neon, trains in the night, high-speed pursuit rumbles, rock stars, motorcycles, jokes in tough situations, leather jackets, and questions of honor. Uh, And then when they were... Looking at the dailies, Larry Gross turned to him and said, this movie is somewhat weirder than we thought, which is about (laughs) when Brad and I come in. Yes. But yeah, so before we get into too much of the plot summary, too much of the spoilers, as usual, but we do, as always, recommend that you watch these movies and get your own opinion uh, before we spoil them for you. But regardless, we're going to give you our spoiler-free thoughts at the top as always. Brad, would you recommend Streets of Fire? 100% yes. Mm -hmm. Um... It's not uncommon for me to bl- blind buy Blu-rays. In fact, I'm mostly blind buy. Yes. Uh, buy something without having seen it prior. You more than most... I think most people like to avoid spoilers. You like to avoid spoilers more than the average person. Yes. You like to go into things completely blind. And a lot of these things, at times, they aren't available for streaming or rent or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But I was cruising Letterbox looking for movies for this show, mm-hmm. and I come across Streets of Fire with with its beautiful, stylistic, almost Van Gogh-like poster. Mm-hmm. and Using pointillism in that in that poster? Uh, I don't think Van Gogh used pointillism. I, I think he famously did, but he, he did a bunch of dots. I okay. think that's what Van Gogh's famous for. I don't think that's correct. Okay. But 
I don't know enough to argue with you. That's all right. And then I saw I saw the cast, which includes Willem Dafoe, mm-hmm. Rick Moranis. Oh my God, Bill Paxton. Yes, it, Bill Paxton's a very small part. Very small, but man. And directed by the great Walter Hill, who mm-hmm. you have most certainly heard of, wrote and directed the Warriors. Yes, a great early. 80s sort of deliverance crossed with platoon movie called Southern Comfort, oh. which has a lot of great actors in it. Uh, probably most well known for 48 Hours, yes. which I've not seen. With uh, Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, right? Yes. Yeah. Brewster's Millions, oddly enough. Extreme Prejudice, which has a stacked cast, but is not... I didn't enjoy it much. He, he contributed to the story for Aliens, oh. and he wrote and produced Aliens 3. Interesting, interesting, okay. And he also did a movie called The Assignment. Yes, which has been living in my head for a long time, though I haven't seen it, just because the premise is so fucking weird. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you tell them? The Assignment is a movie that I heard about like not too long ago, and it, it, it it's a movie starring Michelle Rodriguez, mm-hmm. who is as an action... Not an action star, because she doesn't, she doesn't get to star in movies, but as an action actress is someone I've always been kind of a fan of, who is a hit man, not a hit woman, a hit man, who wakes up one day to discover that she has been forcibly gender reassigned yes. into a woman and goes after the surgeon who did the surgery to her without her consent, Sigourney Weaver, to get bloody revenge. That premise is so odd and upsetting yeah that is and tone deaf i want to say i don't know i don't know what the fuck the idea is walter hill great filmmaker doesn't seem like the greatest person around i would agree but it's also the assignment came out in 2016 true and he did write it and in 2016 he was 74 years old right no, but like he, I was looking in behind the scenes information about this movie, and he. Oh, he seems like a bit of a prick. He seems like he's always been a bit of a prick, and you know that that does happen. But as, yeah, <laughs> but Streets of Fire is not a prick. And then I I watched the trailer for it, which I usually do not do. Right again, so, you don't want to get spoilers. I was so curious about it, and I watched it, and I was like, I think I even like texted you. I sent you the trailer, and I texted you. I was like, I'm getting this. Yeah. <laughs> It's a rock and roll fable. Right. You know, you were stoked about this even I before was. you watched it. And the, I actually got it in case you're a fucking 1,000 Wides of Weird Head and you like to yeah. construct a timeline. Sure. I got it before we recorded our first episode with Spring, and I had brought that along to the recording in case we wanted to watch something after. Yeah. We didn't watch that. I went home and watched it. Next time we got together, I made you watch it. Yes, and my life has never been the same. It's just fantastic. It's not a perfect movie. No. But... And there are things we'll talk about. The music is phenomenal. Some of it doesn't do it for me, but a lot of it's great. It's Most of it is phenomenal. Over the top, it's this weird pastiche of Western and high school rumblers and fucking... The costumes are nuts, and mm, uh, mm, mm. everything is. It's Preach just it. so Preach fun. It. It's so fun in a way that, like, <laughs> I would love a remake of this film. Mm-hmm. It would, but I don't think anyone would let you have this much fun. Walter Hill got to make this movie because he was just coming off of Forty Eight Hours, which was hugely successful. And I don't think this would have ever gotten made if he hadn't found that success because this is yeah. an oddball, and it's not. Again, we deal in variations of weird. This is not Holy Mountain. No. But if you watch this, you're going to be like, 
what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) This is a deeply weird movie. It is. I, I, having some distance from this film for a while, we kept talking about bringing it on the show and you said, I'm going to let you bring it on the show to me. You said, I'm going to let you bring it on the show. And I was never sure whether or not I should, because as the distance moved on from it, I remembered the arc of the plot. Yeah. And if you just describe like the basics of the plot, as we did on the top of this episode, Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound that weird. No. It's the experience of actually watching it. Like if when you're it's letting in it. everything wash over you and being like, yeah, this is it's a deeply it's, weird movie. It's something that I should be calling stupid, yeah, but I can't because it's so damn good. It's so damn good, and I th- it, it is it is tr- it is weird in in I would put it on like Tron levels of weird, where like yeah, the the bare bones of the plot are extremely conventional, sure, but the visuals and the 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 guts it took to make a film like this. Yes. The weird amount of money that got thrown at this crazy ass idea. Yeah. Is insane. And it's, I, so yeah, I recommend this a hundred and a hundred percent as, as hard as I could recommend anything. Yes. There are definitely flaws in the movie. It is not perfect. And there are a couple of things about it that have not aged well, but by and large, a majority of this film is this window into this present day set, or at least '80s present day set, yeah. fairy tale universe That's where both the '80s but also the '50s, it's also the '50s, also, also like, the Wild West, the Wild West, the 1920s. Like it's oh, that it, reminds me that Walter Hill also did Last Man Standing, which is great, which, poorly critically reviewed, but I loved it. Which one's the last? Bruce Man Willis Standing? Uh, Yo Jimbo remake. Which was oh, actually a remake, that's or right, adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest. Yes. So in a way, Last Man Standing is a more true adaptation of the source material than Yojimbo. Than Yojimbo or Fistful of Dollars. Right. Yeah. 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 That's just wow. What a fascinating trip that is. That that whole sentence was the the world of Streets of Fire. So I was just talking to Stephen recently. Has he seen this? Uh, Stephen has not seen this, but he has seen a movie that we talked about recently, Buckaroo Bonsai. And he's a fan of that. And he's I a saw on Letterboxd. Huge fan of it. He. That's one of his. It's one of his family's favorite movies it's one of his dad's favorite movies of all time and so he did not agree with us and and he and i were talking back and forth because we disagree and we can agree and and we can be okay with that you had to explain Uh, to him why he's dumb yeah exactly i was insulting him is what was happening but he was saying the same thing that i think we were talking about with that movie is like it's weird that this this movie has this whole universe that lives inside this writer's Mm -hmm. head and it's almost like shit, I wish we could have seen more of that universe. Yeah. And that's... Now, you and I didn't vibe with Buckaroo Banzai. No. But I vibe with this. Oh, we vibe real hard. And this is the movie where I feel like that. Where I'm like... Well, that was sort of... Shit, I want... And yeah, Walter Hill did have an idea. He wanted there to be a huge series based around Tom Cody, the main character of this film. He wanted, like... He even, like, I think he put a note at the end of the script that was like, this is book one of the adventures of Tom Cody. The move, the story will continue in book two. I and wish... I want that series so bad. I, yeah, I wish that would have been, like, an Indiana Jones, like, another... Uh, sure. Although, 
Drop Michael Paré. Drop Michael Paré. Who is the big dud of the movie. He's the lodestone around this movie's neck. Michael Paré is the actor who plays Tom Cody. Honestly, if this had been from the adventures of McCoy... Oh my God, that's what I wanted. better, because that's what I really want. And again, we will get into spoilers in a yeah. section. You'll know who McCoy is. I'm, a lot of people are just listening to this, just imagining like I'm talking about Dr. Leonard James McCoy from Star Trek. Just sure. Sort of I'm, tooling I'm sure. around a yeah. rock and roll landscape. Just like... He's let, got the boogie-woogie fever. He's got the... <laughs> Jim, he's dead. He could die from boogie-woogie fever. That is also sounds like a great movie, though. Just like Leonard McCoy just wandering around being... Yeah. Real, being the Everybody only person... talking at Being me. the only person in this rock and roll universe who doesn't like rock and roll <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, maybe he would like the smells. You whippersnappers. Man, I love the world of this movie. I Absolutely. love the creativity of this movie. And it, it does kind of feel like... A, a movie that should have blown up and turned into this I can massive, see why expansive it comic book universe. There are many very legit reasons why it didn't. Yes. My the, God, this movie is, is... 1984 was a bad year for starting franchises. Buckaroo Bonsai, <laughs> Streets of Fire. Oh, man. Did they ever want to make Repo Man? Well, they did. They did try and make Repo Man Well, they made franchise. Repo Girl much, yeah. much later yeah. when Alex Cox was making... Real uh, bad movies in front of a blue screen in this basement. Pretty much. Yeah. Micro-budget movies. Micro-budget movies. Like Micronauts, but less fun. Yeah. I will probably watch that someday. Yeah. I don't even know if it's available to uh, procure anyway, but... Sadly, the only continuation of Streets of Fire is also a much lower-budget sequel made not by Str- uh, Walter Hill, but by somebody else in 2008. Oh, it really? Called Road to Hell. I've never heard of this. You're the one who told me about this. And did I, I? Yeah, you did, back when we first watched it. And I looked it up when we were when I was taking notes on this movie. The only thing that comes back from this movie is Michael Paré. He comes <sighs> back to play Tom Cody again, and in a plot where he has to save the daughter of the rock star from this movie, and they play some of the songs from this movie, including our favorite one, and it, I, I looked up that scene just to watch it because we love that song. Yes. And it is fucking depressing. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it's not a good time. It's I, just I some... completely forgot that I learned about that and told yeah. you about it. That's okay. Uh, I must have blocked it out for a reason, and now yeah. you've uncovered my trauma. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, no, this, this is this is me pushing your buttons. Yep. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this episode's the opposite of therapy. I'm going to bring up oh, all, no. all your bad trauma. Oh, shit, it's psychic driving. <laughs> But yes, let's go nowhere fast. Yes. Let's blast into the plot of one of the greatest movies you've never seen. Just another background thing. Oh um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Walter Hill wanted to make like a comic book movie. That's right, I did hear about this. But he he, he looked through comic books at the time and was like, these are all trash. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like a single comic Didn't book Didn't like character. a single one, but he wanted that sort of Vibe. feel. Yeah. And it's also he... He wanted, because this is a high school story, mm-hmm. even though Michael Paré is like 28, Diane Lane or Diane uh, Lane? Is it Diane Lane or Diane Keaton? It's not Diane Keaton. 
But I always confuse Diane Lane and Diane Ladd. It's who it's whoever played Superman's mom in Man of Steel. Because the first time we watched this, I couldn't get past the fact that it was Superman's mom from Man of Steel. So I, even though like her performance in the movie is fine, and I quite liked her the second time I watched it, the first time I watched it, I kept thinking like, ooh, like just like leftover hatred for the Snyderverse kept spilling over into my viewing of it's, this movie. It's Diane Lane. That's it. Um, okay, but she was actually eighteen. Yeah, she was. But everyone else was 20s. Mm-hmm. She was the youngest member of the cast, but she was simultaneously one, one of, of the, the most pe- one of the most experienced in terms of acting. She had just at worked the time. with Coppola. Yes, which is how she got the job. They were like, "Oh my mm. god, you worked with Coppola." The other thing was that even though they're in high school, yes. that's how I got started up talking about ages. Gotcha. Michael Paré was like 28, Diane Lane is like 18. Mm-hmm. Walter Hill didn't want this to be like a bloody film. He didn't want there yes. to be a lot of killing. He wanted no. to keep it which I think is part of why I like this movie. I think that yeah. that's, I think no, that that's a positive with this film. In a way, especially for a filmmaker like Walter Hill, who likes his blood and action. Sure, yeah. That's sort of a brave choice. Like, yeah, and I do think that it hurt the movie. I think that I if think this, I think because some I, goofy shit happens. Yeah. Where it's like, they should be dead. Yeah. No, in, in, the, in, in the 80s, the 80s was one of the the last times when gore was actually let me gore is still a selling point now for people like us and for a lot of people out there but it was the last time that i feel like studios went for that sort of thing where you have movies like evil dead 2 or movies like die hard and commando where they'll just be like these splashes of violent like horrible mutilations happening on screen it's just like yeah that's what the audience wants i mean you're ignoring quentin tarantino in the 90s that's very true that's very true but like i feel like that was something of a selling point when it came to action movies in the 80s in particular and uh, like late 80s early 90s maybe because this is 84 i'm I'm completely wrong and that larry gross anyway is quoted as saying i think if we put more gore in the movie people would more people would have watched not even more gore just like squibs just yeah. some just some blood spray just have tom cody go ham with that rifle but instead just like i was talking about with buckaroo bonsai this movie is very a team where there's a yeah. lot of bullets flying and a lot of property being wrecked but nobody's permanently injured nobody goes to the hospital nobody is killed but it feels like it's so much more natural to this universe than mm-hmm. it does with Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, it's also very much like the the universe of the, going to Western, since this movie is so heavily Western-inspired. Yeah. It feels I'm gonna a lot shoot like, the gun out of your hand. Exactly, it's the Lone Ranger. It's like I'm gonna, I'm always gonna use gun. I'm, I'm always using guns, but somehow I'm never gonna kill. Yes. Yeah. All right, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. So we begin one of the greatest movie openings ever. I was about to say one of the greatest openings in cinematic history, specifically one of the greatest musical openings mm-hmm. in cinematic history. There's the Star Wars theme kicking in over the title crawl, the Jets snapping their fingers in West Side Story. We learned that this any is movie a... where Queen did the soundtrack, and then there's this movie. We learned that this is another time, another place, which was a, a caption that was inspired by in, Star Wars by Star Wars's caption that had come out a few years earlier. They realized that I, I don't remember if this was from Walter Hill or Larry Gross, but one of them was saying that they realized, oh yeah, you don't have to set movies in reality, no. and your fantasies don't have to all happen outside of a castle in a forest somewhere. No. You can just set a fantasy anywhere. What if we set a fantasy 
in a city, yeah. Hill said that he was also partially inspired by Cocteau in his yes. movie La Belle and La Bette. Bizarrely! <laughs> no, I'm... but like, it makes sense because La Belle and La Bette, his version of The Beauty and the Beast, which is the second most famous adaptation of that story aside from the Disney version, uh, famously starts off with a, a narration and a title crawl that says, when you're watching this movie please watch this movie with the mind of a child. Accept yeah. this world as if you were a child hearing the story. Basically, that is what the movie's saying. Hey, this doesn't take place in Chicago, where some of the location shooting took place. This movie takes place in another time and another place. And it is a rock and roll fable. And, and that's a, a one-two punch Yes, that immediately is like... I think you're either on board or you're not at this point. Yeah. Like, if you if you see Another Time, Another Place, mm-hmm. Streets of Fire, a rock and roll fable... Yeah. That's either entirely your jam or it is not your jam yeah. at all. And maybe you'll get on board later once things actually happen. Sure. But I know for me, I was like... Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm ready for this ride. I can see someone, like, the first time we watched it, I liked it a lot less than the second time I watched it for the show. Understandable. Uh, I still really liked it, but I liked it way better the second time. And part of the reason for that is that while the vibe of a rock and roll fable is great, mm-hmm. there are things that detract from it, and again, we will get into yes. it. Have uh, we... The title was, again, Streets of Fire. This was an intentional reference to the Bruce Springsteen song, which they thought they were going to be able to use. And then they were not able to use it, apparently because Bruce Springsteen didn't like that he wasn't going to be in the movie. Well, he wasn't... No, just that they weren't going to use his vocals. They weren't going to use his vocals. They were going to use someone else's vocals because they were going to have one of the characters sing it in it the movie. Gonna be, uh, it was going to be Diane Lane. Diane Lane. It was going to be Ellen The movie is a musical, which was apparently a last-minute decision based on the success of Flashdance. Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy to me because the fact that it is a musical feels so integral to the universe of the movie that I can't imagine it any other way. Okay. Apparently it was a fairly late stage addition. Absolutely. Yeah. But this is not a musical musical. It's not like Cats or Dear Evan Hansen. No. There is only one non-diegetic musical number. Most of the other musical numbers in the movie take place like there's like through performances on stage. But it is still a musical because there is that one non-diegetic musical number. Okay. Have we mentioned that Joel Silver was involved with this film? No, remind me who Joel Silver Joel is. Joel Silver is one of the great super producers. Let me let me read off some of his producing credits. Yeah, go ahead. 48 Hours, Weird Science, Commando, Lethal Weapon, Predator, Die Hard, Roadhouse, Lethal Weapon 2, Die Hard 2, Predator 2, Lethal Holy Weapon 3, shit. Demolition Man, Lethal Weapon 4, The Matrix. Jesus, this guy is just like dominated popcorn cinema for years. One of my favorite movies, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Sure. And those that was just producing credits. Here's yeah. executive producer. All right. Streets of Fire. Yeah. Uh, Joel Silver, apparently, by the way, is the reason why uh, Rick Moranis is in this, because he and Rick Moranis were friends. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that was the only good uh, executive producer credit he had. Oh, just, uh, just Streets of Fire? Yeah, no, there's... <laughs> There's some duds on here. Um, uh, hey, Joel Silver knows how to distance himself from work he's not a, as proud of, apparently. Oh, yeah. He also produced Fred Claus. Uh, I haven't seen Fred Claus. Maybe it's amazing. I haven't seen it. It could be. Mm-hmm. You're right. I just, whenever I think of Fred Claus, I think of when Jean Ralphio is coaching Tom on his <laughs> uh, best man speech. He's yeah. like, I want to do a Vaughn quote, either, which I do, from Crashers or Swingers. <laughs> Fred Claus. 
I've heard that Paul Giamatti is a fantastic Santa. I believe it. In that movie. But if he's Paul Giamatti, I'm not sure he's capable of a bad performance. True. Much like Rick Moranis. So the music immediately starts up as the credits come up. It's just a big, like, but it like it's 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 kicking in. It's it feels it has the same feeling if you've ever watched the animated Transformers the movie from the eighties when that opening title starts and you just hear like the 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 drums coming dump 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 and like the little guitar riff in the background before it gets into that. Uh, you got the touch. Uh, not even that song yet. Oh. It's like a, it's a cover of the Transformers theme song by a band called Lion, okay. uh, and it's just one of the coolest movie openings of all time. But it, it's that feeling. But before we get to the song, as it's building, we see a quick montage of flashes of some of the most incredible sets you've ever seen in your life. And all sets. All sets. There are apparently some shots in the movie that were location shots. Very few. But mostly sets. Most of this movie, it all takes place mostly outdoors in a city. And almost all of this is sets. The movie was something like fourteen million over budget by the end of it, because they, this is Walter Hill's apocalypse. This now. is this is Walter Hill's apocalypse now, where they were essentially like like Gotham City in the Tim Burton Batman movies. They built an entire city to the specifications of this magical world that they Walter Hill had in his head. Five hundred extras. Yes. To populate the city. Yes, they the AD's entire job was just directing all the extras, which apparently was a nightmare. They yeah, they just they they created a city that looks like it looks like New York, it looks like Chicago, which is what it was meant to look like. It looks like all of these of course it's not Chicago, it's not New York, it's another place in another time. Mm. But they created this whole world that's so specific and so my God, I love this city. Yeah. I want it's it's one of those places like the rooftop set in Mary Poppins during the Step in Time sequence or Gotham City in the Tim Burton Batman movies. I just want to be there. Yeah. I, I want to visit this place. I want to run around in this world. I want like a GTA style Streets of Fire game. Oh my god. Fuck. That would be incredible. <laughs> It would be fantastic. I would never stop playing that game. I but would you, stop doing the show. I would only do that game. Sure. Yeah. You would only fuck that game. <laughs> I would only fuck that you game. You would put your dick right through the hole right in the center. Right through the hole. Right through the hole all day long. And yet still playing it, so my dick would just be smashed well, you, into the PS4. You would have two copies. Yes. One to play and one to fuck, like a true collector. Right, like a true collector. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, we get a little montage. We see... We, we get the... <clears throat> <clears throat> but we see <clears throat> people around town like... Yeah. Getting ready to go to this show. This is yeah. the big show. It's Ellen Aim and the Attackers. Oh my god. You Local girl makes good. You can't miss Ellen Aim and the Attackers, man. Because she's from there. Yeah. They know her. This is a religion. Brad, uh, how would you describe the aesthetic of this universe? It's like if the 80s met the 50s and mm -hmm. Tom Cody looks like he's from the Depression. Yes. And McCoy looks like she's from the Korean War <laughs> and Ellen Aim looks pure 80s yes and Rick Moranis looks timeless as always as always uh, it's it's hard to pin down because it's such a pastiche it, it, like it's like it, they said hey I want every part of the 20th century in America in one 
area. Yes. Is from the 1910s to the 80s, all of that in one city. Pretty much. In one world. And you, you get vibes of that in this opening, like you see a mm-hmm. very traditional diner. Yes. Where Tom Cody's sister runs it and works it. And uh, that's Reva. Reva. Yeah, great and, character. Oh, I love Reva. Reva's the best. And that looks very 50s, mm-hmm. but the venue looks very 80s. Yes. Like, it looks very uh, contemporary. The the venue, I believe, is one of the only real locations that they have. It's like a real theater that they rented. But out. every car you see driving around is like the 50s. Yes. So it's, it's this like weird a very mix. a very old 50s. Everything has a layer of dust on it an inch thick. It's sort of the Gotham City aspect, yeah. where it's yeah. dark and gritty. And there's, like, there's, there's a roof to the world. Everyone's always going under a bridge. Yeah. At all times. Well, it was all filmed under a huge tarpaulin. That that's right. Yes, I didn't understand that when they were talking about they it. Just, what is that? A tarp. Oh, literally just a big tarp. Yeah. So they're just filming inside of a gigantic tent. Yes. Jesus. <laughs> this, so and this, it, it's this is a wonderful trick that the movie plays. Again, we no one dies. Spoiler yeah. alert. Uh, you don't see much blood. Uh huh. But already this. Uh, aesthetic this darkness is making us think the movie is much grittier and darker than it actually is it gives the again that idea of like you can do fantasy without doing it in what is a dungeons and dragons setting a a traditional fantasy setting with this idea of like this is a city scape that gives you the sense of i'm in an enchanted forest or like I'm in a, a in the old west i'm in a saloon or something like that and it's it's so fucking good i i wrote down a tr- again trying to just trying to describe this vibe because it's the only time i've ever seen this vibe yeah. anywhere rockabilly slash used future of star wars sort of like that yeah like cross that's, between those that's things. part of it but it's not it's it, again it's such a wide pastiche that yeah. it's you just kind of need to see it. But uh, some of the only dialogue we get here, Rick Moranis is introduced very quickly. He's getting uh, the rare opportunity for Rick Moranis to play a complete asshole. A complete asshole, and also someone who habitually stands up to the tough hero. Yes, which uh, honestly, awesome. I I loved, I loved it. I love Rick I loved Moranis it. so much. And this and was uh, this was I think this was before Ghostbusters. Yes. And this was before he became a Disney mainstay. Right. So this was very early Rick Moranis. Very early Rick Moranis. He was known, but he wasn't Ghostbusters. He wasn't the international sex symbol that he would become. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. International sex symbol Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis would go to press junkets for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Mm Mm-hmm. And he would do the Iggy Pop, where he would just take out his dick right. and lay it on the microphone. Right, yes. He would do exactly that. And yes, as a, as opposed to Diane Lane, who would just go around doing the Ozzy Osbourne, biting heads off of bats. Yes. Finally, uh, the build-up gets mm. to this absolutely mm. insane crescendo, and uh, the announcer comes on and says, oh, we find out from Rick Moranis that the show is, doing the show is up complete passion project for Ellen yes Aim. it's for charity yes she well she, he calls it a charity project i think the idea is that they are in an area where people can't afford their normal ticket prices gotcha but like he's they're not actually making back much on the show ellen aim is here because this is where she came from exactly and the announcer establishes that by saying and now back home again the one the only ellen, ellen aim. aim and then we get best thing 
ever. This is <laughs> if you don't fall in love with this movie by the end of this song called yeah. Nowhere Fast, yeah. written by Meatloaf songwriter Jim Steinman. Also Bonnie Tyler songwriter Jim Steinman. It feels like a Bonnie Tyler he, song he, too. He wrote both Bad Out of Hell and uh, Total Eclipse of, of the Heart. It feels so like he both is, of them. So he is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. There's Jim Steinman, and then like a little bit lower down the list, you have Amadeus Mozart and Ludwig von Beethoven. Yes. But like, it's, when I first watched this, I was like, this is the most perfect song that Meatloaf never recorded. And it makes sense because it's a Meatloaf songwriter. Yeah. And Meatloaf did did do a song called Nowhere Fast that has completely different lyrics. Different lyrics? Completely different. I knew that it was like slower. I didn't know that he did different lyrics Completely different lyrics. That sucks. Yes. I knew that it sucked before, but I didn't know how bad it sucked. This song, if if America made this the national anthem, I would be proud of my country again. I would never (laughs) kneel again. (laughs) Exactly. For anything. For any reason. Just in case somebody thought I was protesting the national anthem. Right, yeah, just for any reason. Like, if you're familiar with Meatloaf... You know that, you like... sort of the vibe. It's very much his, like... It's, it's very, like... This epic... Uh, epic song about, the like... The most powerful of all power ballads. It, uh, it's... Again, Total Eclipse of the Heart, the Bonnie Tyler vibe. Like, this song gets into my soul. It's a power <laughs> jam. It's a power jam and a half. Um, I just... Lying in your bed and on a Saturday night, you're sweating buckets and it's not even hot. Just those fucking two lines, like, are so evocative. Lying in your bed and on a Saturday night? Oh, my God. You're young. You should be out there. And you're sweating, but it's not even hot. Why Mm -hmm. are you sweating? Because your brain has got a message and it's sending it out to every nerve and every muscle you got. Mm. You got so many dreams that you don't know where to put them, so you better cut a few of them loose. Oh god! And we're also getting into like testify the dreariness of the of the landscape where it's like, mm-hmm. oh man, you want to get out, yeah, but you're not going to, so you might as well let it go. And it, it, it's we've talked about how difficult it is to take notes for this show when it's yes. a movie that we like. This scene, I was taking notes. This scene came on. I involuntarily dropped my phone out of my hand, which I was using to take notes, and just, like, clapping, my hands were in the air, raised towards <laughs> God, I was just, like, exalted. And then I wrote notes based on what I could remember, and then rewatched the scene again, <laughs> and then finished the movie, and then watched the scene a third time. My gut, like, this is... Now, unfortunately, this is sort of a Blade situation where this is the peak of the movie. <laughs> the rest yeah, of the movie is also great, great. But this is so fucking amazing. But this is... I, I wrote down this is the holy mountain. This is yeah. <laughs> this this scene is should be studied in a laboratory. Like this should be worshipped by film students who should wake up every morning and watch the scene before going out and studying movies. Dying in the city like a fire on the water. Let's go running on the back of the wind. Oh. There's gotta be some action on the face of the earth, and I gotta see your face once again. Dun 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 dun. And I don't know where I am. I got the bright idea that I was cool, so alone and independent, but I'm depending on you now. Oh, God, it's so good. <sighs> and my favorite, it, the song is called Nowhere Fast. I don't even yeah, know if yeah, that. Yeah, nowhere, but, um, going nowhere fast. Uh, you what, and what? me were going nowhere slowly, and we gotta get away from the past. There's nothing wrong with going nowhere, baby, but we should be going nowhere fast. But we should be going nowhere fast. And my my favorite 
invert like a little tweak on the lyrics everybody's going nowhere slowly they're only fighting for the chance to be last uh, there's nothing wrong with going great, nowhere slowly, but you should, we should be, be going, going nowhere fast. fast and everyone else is just fighting for the chance to be last. Uh, and then there's a tremendous breakdown at the end. Godspeed. 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 Speed us away. My God. I, a lot of me singing during this episode. That's so okay. Beware. That's okay. Uh, my God. I. But uh, the cinematography for for this movie is fantastic especially the concerts and this like part of the power of this is not just the song but like the editing yeah the uh no the action by diane lane as ellen aim and her backup band mm-hmm. this is apparently a role that diane lane did not take did not take lightly like no, diane she... lane gave a shit about this performance and and when she found out like that there was a part up for her you're supposed to be playing a rock god she was like i want to do that yeah. And I want to do nothing but that. She showed up. She tried real hard for the audition. She came in character, in yep. costume already. Uh, and she and she sells it. Like she's, Oh, she, she, I love she's her. She's not doing her own singing in the scene, no, by the way. No, no one does. Uh, and, but she is like, and she's clearly not a dancer or anything, but she's like absolutely like just fucking getting into She would into win it. a lip sync battle. Yes. No, she, absolutely. Towards the middle. We see mm-hmm. that a biker gang is approaching in mm-hmm. shadows. This and- is the most chilling villain entrance of any movie. Like like Darth Vader coming through the smoke in the blockade uh, in, runner in 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 in, in, uh, in the beginning of Star Wars in the Tanti Four. This is like they the the bikers roll up. They come you see in them coming on the street in complete shadow. You only They're see backlit. vague outlines of them. But as the song is slowly coming to a close, the lights very slowly come up on the most pasty, pale Willem Dafoe has ever been. And so young. Such a young man. Such a young... All the lines you're used to seeing in Willem Dafoe's face are all smoothed out. It's a terrifying, smooth Willem Dafoe. He has a hairdo that's like a... It's like out of a fucking anime. Yeah. Like, it's not spiky. It's just like... It, an anime interpretation of a greaser. Yeah, it's it's David Tennant's hairstyle from that one episode of Doctor Who where he was in the fifties, the one with the TV stealing people's faces. He's just like the the rare, smooth, pale greaser Willem Dafoe coming out of the shadows with just this intense, hungry look on his face. And even though the song is is exalting you towards heaven, here so- he comes. From the depths of hell. But it's so perfect because, like, it's talking about getting out there, going fast, even yeah. if you're going nowhere. And here's the fucking motorcycles. And here's the fucking, here's the bad boy. Here's the devil. And as the Here song is, is Satan. As the song is closing out, yeah. Willem Dafoe playing the wonderfully named character Raven Shaddix. Raven Shaddix. Oh, my Speaking God. of anime shit, that's, just, <laughs> that's someone that Yu Gi Oh would play cards Speaking against. Speaking of <laughs> the greatest porn name never used. <laughs> I mean, Raven Shaddix is the perfect name for anything. Like, uh, what if you were going to meet a name man named Raven Shaddix? On what circumstances would you not want to meet him? Like, if you were a professional of some sort. If I was a professional of some sort, and I wouldn't want to meet Raven, I wouldn't. No, if he were a professional, like what? Like what profession could he possibly? Aside from gang leader, right? Yeah, Uh, Raven Shaddix, the the richest man in the world. Raven Shaddix, if a helicopter pilot, helicopter pilot, Uh, Raven Shaddix, uh, private detective, the most powerful stuntman in the world. Hell yeah, he can be set on fire without needing a suit for it. I mean, I go to a, a 
watch repairman named Raven Shaddix. I'm Raven, like, Raven Shaddix seems too big for normal professions. He should be a crime fighter. I mean, that's Ra- why he's a gang boss. That's why he's a gang leader. Raven Shaddix, duel master. Raven, the only man that Maximilian Pegasus has ever feared. Raven Shaddix. Raven Shaddix. No, it's a perfect comic book name. Dr. Doom's mentor. Raven Shaddix. Exactly. But as the song but, is winding but, down... But before we get to that, okay. uh, I, it's a couple more things about the scene, because again, the scene. This song is so powerful that we see that it actually makes makes Rick Moranis' character smile. It's yeah. so powerful, it makes well, his heart grow three sizes. I figured it was sort of thing where he's like, Rick Moranis and Ellen Aim are an yes. item. Well, as we find They're out later, yes. They're a boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah, Rick Moranis' character's name is Billy Fish. Billy Fish. And I kept Perfect. Wanting, I kept Perfect. wanting to call him Billy the Fish. Oh. But he's just Billy Fish, sadly. Uh, again, these names are perfect. Yes. Even in their simplicity, Billy Fish, Ellen Aim, like, mm-hmm. wonderful names. I figured Billy Fish was smiling because he's like, there's a woman I love. Mm-hmm. She's performing like a goddess. I, I think that that's part of it, but I think that there is something about like her talent. She is so genuinely the goddess of rock and roll in this universe that there is something about that that just like magically takes all of the all of the bullshit artifice that makes people negative away yeah. from them and turns them into the best versions of themselves. And the next, the only time in this movie where we see Billy Fish acting nice towards anyone is, is the, the next end. is the end which is the next time that we see her perform yeah. in con- in the universe of this movie but yeah but the song as you mentioned the filmmaking on display in the scene is fucking incredible which is funny because Walter Hill said that he didn't know what he was doing when filming the scenes really because he'd never filmed musical numbers before and okay. that later on he asked someone who had been in the business in the 30s making musicals how did you guys do that because I have so much I had so much of a hard time the one time I did it and they said, well, we rehearsed a lot. And he's like, that's right. We didn't do that. <sighs> we got the songs like an hour before we shot. And then we figured it out as we went. That's nuts. Which it is looks insane. Fantastic. It looks so good. But that speaks to what a great filmmaker Walter Hill is. Yeah. And a song going nowhere, uh, nowhere fast is performed by Ellen Amon and the attackers in universe. And in real life, it's performed by Ellen Amon's voice is a combination of two singers uh, Lori Sargent and Holly Sherwood. They went back and forth taking lead on these songs, but they also, even on songs where one of them is more the singer than the other one, mm-hmm. their voices are still somewhat combined. Gotcha. Where they decided that they liked the performances of one better than the other on certain bits, and they edited them together. That's why it's so powerful. And also fused... You two ladies. It's a song that's literally so... The soundtrack of the movie is literally so powerful that not one human being could do it as flawlessly as they did mm-hmm. it. They used computers to do it. And Just like Tron. Together, when, whenever they did a song in this, you can tell it's all them together because on the soundtrack it'll be credited to Fire, Fire Inc. In- Incorporated, which is the name that they gave the, the robot fusion of these two singers. The band behind her, both on screen and on the track is a uh, punk band called Face to Face. And they do fantastic. And Diane Lane is great. Holy shit. These, they have these, the stage presence. These performers yeah, like, are giving it their fucking all. Their dress is Buddy Holly and they are giving it rock star 100% and I love them with all of my heart. Alright, is that uh, everything? That's or? everything that I wanted to talk about with that scene. But yes, the song ends and Defoe yells, Go! And, the, and his men rush the stage 
beat up the band and Rick Moranis and take Ellen hostage. Willem Dafoe straight up Donkey Kongs this woman. woman. And I want Willem Dafoe to play Donkey Kong now. My God. And I don't want to be. I don't want him to voice Donkey Kong. No, you want. I him want to him to be capture. in. No, no. I want him to be in a griller suit. Oh. <laughs> With like the face cut out, so it's Willem Dafoe's face. <laughs> Or at least his eyes, and then you have the monkey mouth. Uh, no, I want his. I want him to be in like a suit. He's like, ah, Mario, Rob- I'm gonna throw a barrel at you. Robert Pattinson went on record as saying that Willem Dafoe has more energy than any other actor he's I'm ever sure. worked with. So I think that Willem Dafoe would be down. I'm sure he would. I'm. <laughs> Willem Dafoe seems to be down for pretty much anything. Seems like it. Yeah, I, I'm sure he has a quote. But that quote sure. doesn't seem too high because they got him for the first John Wick. They got him for the first John Wick for a fairly small role. They got him for fucking uh, that vampire movie with Ethan Hawke that I forget the name of right now, but is hokey fun. He's barely in that one, and he plays an Elvis-obsessed vampire hunter. Okay. It's the best part of the movie, aside from Sam Neill being Sam Neill because he's also the best part of anything he's in. Sure. But yes, the the biker gang... Oh my god! Sorry, go ahead. Daybreakers! Daybreakers is the name of that vampire movie. Sorry. This is a Donkey Kong movie because Tom Cody is going to fight Willem Dafoe with a hammer at the end. Oh my god! We just cracked the code, motherfuckers. (laughs) We see you, Walter Hill. We see you, motherfucker. He wanted to direct that Bob Hoskins piece of shit, and instead he got he got sucked doing this. Yeah, he wanted to direct Super Mario Brothers ten years in the future. Now I'm pissed off that this that the the hammer fight at the end of this movie doesn't take place on top of a half finished skyscraper or like on a scaffold or something. Just just like, on a big like a bunch of steel girders yeah. in the air, and they're like, "Oh my god, I'm almost falling off the entire time." I just that want Tom Cody to jump over one barrel. Just just one. They couldn't even give us that. The, but yeah, the, but yeah. They this 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 biker gang. They steal Ellen. The Aim. bombers. The bombers is what they're called. They steal Ellen. Aim. They 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 cause a huge riot. Everyone's freaking out, punching they're, people. They're decking people. They're they're they drag a man chaos. down the street with their motorcycles. They go out into the into the public area and they're just causing chaos. I think they even throw a couple of bombs. Maybe maybe uh, I don't quite remember. They but rip they, a lady's shirt open, kind of. Yeah, kind of, but they do again, like no, no real no explicit nudity, nudity or, or explicit like horrifying. We do get a little bit of nudity later. Kind of remind me of uh, this is a very obscure reference, I guess, but it just it, it's what I kept thinking about through the whole movie. The the biker gang from the pilot movie for the '90s Flash TV show okay. uh, is very similar vibes, where they don't re- they're not doing anything that would actually gain them any profit. They just like going into places and wrecking shit. Yeah, because uh, they're they're not a real biker gang. They're not a real mob. They are the butch. They're just Ca- toughs. They're the Butch Cavendish gang. They're they're coming in and they're they're wrecking shit. They're wrecking the settlement. And this is not a real cityscape. This is a little old west town out on the on the frontier somewhere and everyone in town in this little area of town knows each other it's a very tight-knit community like it would be in an old west town or a small town or small medieval settlement out there again this doesn't take place in chicago this takes place in a fantasy world uh, it operates on Western logic. Hill said in an interview, every film I've ever done has been a Western. The Western is ultimately a stripped-down moral universe that is beyond, that is whatever dramatic, the dramatic problems are, beyond the normal avenues of the social con- 
control and social alleviation of the problem. And I like to do that even within contemporary stories. A young lady who was at the concert who we met earlier, Reva, Reva. Cody, call, is, she knows that she's in the Western universe and she knows when there's one riot, you need one ranger. And so she, she sends out a out message. typewriter. For the, for the man with no name of this universe, whose name is Tom, Tom Cody, because as always, the man with no name definitely has a name in every one of those movies. But she calls out for, she, she literally writes a letter. Again, this is a Western. She writes a letter mm. and sends it off. And well, on the granted, night, it was 1984. There were only so many things she could do. Sure. She could call him. She could call but, him, but no, uh, this is a Western. She writes a, she writes a letter and probably, we don't see this, but probably sent it over the teletype. And telegram? He, into the telegram. And he comes in on the night train from, in from Santa Fe or whatever the fuck. And, and comes in and before, we're going to get into Tom Cody in a second. I do want to say before we get to him, his costume is iconic. It's okay. Yes, like I said, he looks like he's from the fucking Depression. Yeah, no, he looks like he's... Been, speaking of hammers, he looks like he was working right next to John Henry on the, on the fucking railroad. Sure. Like he's got Like, he's got this big old trench coat, and he's got the... This shirt with like the cutoff sleeves, except when they're not, and the overalls, and like the old-fashioned suspenders where it's like two, like two button clips. Yes, yeah, and, uh, two button yeah, clips no, and like a loose cord. He looks like he should be in a movie about like unionizing the mines like exactly he's, he's the first person the pinkertons killed a strike break right right like that or or or, or maybe he's gonna be uh yelling outside a window yelling stella or something like that sure like, he just he's yeah definitely that sort of vibe but he I, looks like I, he would fit perfectly into the firefly universe oh 100 percent. this movie this this character you can tell that the costume designer was given the thing hey Here's a picture of John Wayne in the movie. Here's a picture of Clint Eastwood in the Man with No Name trilogy. I need you to capture this vibe, but it needs to be different. West Coast America during the East last, Coast? Uh, yeah, East Coast America during the last hundred years or so. That's the kind of, but more yeah. towards the fifties or twenties. That's the vibe, and then they immediately understood the assignment and completely captured yes. that. And I. Just want to say that immediately because Tom Cody sucks. Tom Cody does suck, and Michael Paré sucks. Yeah. Uh, Tom Cody, as a character, does indeed suck on his own. He wouldn't suck as hard if he was played by anybody else. Yes. Michael Paré has the look. He has the look yeah. 100%. He looks aside a from like... his weird patchy beard. Yeah, aside from the weird... He looks like Casper Van Dien with a patchy beard. Sure. Uh, who's some... Who's who's like on some sort of like... He, he just went to the dentist and yeah, he's still he, like asleep. He sounds he's, like a drunk Sylvester Stallone. God, yes. Yeah. And I, I think I know what happened because there's a lot in this movie that feels very John Wayne... Like, this is not referencing I, the 70s music, Western. This is very much referencing classic yes. Westerns. And I think that when they met with this... Now, their first choice was Tom Cruise. Yes. I am not a big Tom Cruise fan. He I'm not either. I would have been interested to see him in this role. Sure. He would have been better than Michael Paré, I think. But, like, I'm not... He would have had more charisma. Yeah. I'm not... I'm just not a fan of Tom Cruise's acting. No, uh, generally which not. Is generally, which is why I'm a fan of the Mission Impossible movies, because he doesn't do much other than... Like the physical stunt work in those Aside films. from his stiff running. Aside from his stiff running and the and the stunt work, which he's good at. But they were looking at so they were looking at other actors because Tom Cruise was off doing some other movie, and they were like, okay, 
and and Michael Paré comes in and he has this very slow, monotone, deep voice delivery, which works. And I think they were looking sometimes. at that, and they, sometimes, and I think they were looking at that and they were like, "Hey, this is kind of giving me that sort of John Wayne kind of thing," because he also talked really slow yeah. had a deep voice, kind of a monotone delivery. And John Wayne is not a great actor. No, was not a great actor. Not a great, not. not a great human being. But we're not going to quote uh, Repo Men here. Yeah, no, yeah, you, <laughs> you read my mind. I know. Although, I know. Although, Every time John Wayne comes up, I know what's going on. Although, whether or not that was true, that is not why John Wayne is no, not. No, not at all. No, no, he was bad for other reasons. Look up the clip he he had about uh, about race relations in America. Uh, look at. The time when he wanted to beat the shit out of a Native American woman. Yes. In, in, uh, on stage on at the Oscars. Live, on live TV. Uh, but no, Michael Paré is trash. Michael Paré sucks. But but John Wayne did have, one, some of the greatest directors in history telling him what to do. And two, some kind of charisma yeah. on screen. And Michael Paré just doesn't. No, he's a dud. Mike, he's the dud of the film. He is so bad. I will say again... Watching this the second time through for this show, he didn't bother me as much as the first time I, I agree, watched it. I agree, although it, this was my third watch. Yes. And like now I'm just... Because I expect it. I expect him to be a dud, At and this, I'm more accepting of it. Once you decide that you like a movie, it's much easier to... Uh, sort of sand off those rough sand edges. Sand off the rough edges. When you're still trying to decide whether you like a movie or not, anything's going to come up as like a, a legit thing that you need to pay attention to in terms of like, hey, what's a point against? What's a point yeah. for? I usually don't like belittling actors, but then I, I read a lot of stuff from Michael Paré's interviews where he comes off as a real fucking tool, so I don't feel as bad about it anymore. Yeah. Before we move on from Tom Cody, while I was watching it, I was writing down a list of actors who were who would have been available at the time that I thought could have played the part better. My A tier pick for the part is, I think, obviously Kurt Russell. Yes, uh, like he he was born to play parts like this. Mm, yeah, but the two other people that I came up with were Emilio Estevez from Repo Men. Okay, who clearly would have was too busy doing Repo Men. Repo this time. Man. Repo Man. I'm sorry. And the other one was Patrick Swayze. And lo and behold, who did audition for this movie... The Swayze. ...is Patrick Swayze, and from what I was able to glean, they just didn't accept his audition, and that is fucking foolish. Well, Joel <laughs> Silver would make up for that when he produced Roadhouse. There you go. He must have remembered him and was like, hey, the biggest mistake I ever made, let's correct it right now. I also want to point out that, aside from the fantastic songs in this movie, mm -hmm. the score is written by Ry Cooter. Mm. Frequent Walter Hill collaborator, very famous blues musician, oh. famous for that slide guitar. Oh, nice! I believe love I a hope. good love a good slide guitar. There is a lot of guitar in this. It's very sort of that sort of like uh, very West, western strumming, western bluesy. Yeah, very good, very very good at setting the tone. The apparently we're not the only ones who are disappointed in Michael Pere. Uh, there's oh, no, Larry, the producers did not like him. Either. Larry Gross, the co-writer of the movie hated Michael Pere and takes every opportunity to blame the failings of the movie on uh, on Michael Pere solely. He's a convenient scapegoat. He is a convenient scapegoat. I don't think he's the only reason this movie I blame do him well. for 9-11. <laughs> 
But he's, this is a direct quote. There was a chance of something great, and but early fundamental disappointment with key personnel, and then in parentheses, because this is from a book he wrote, in that case, the star Michael Pore steeled all of us to face the chance that it might turn out, not turn out that way. It must. Like, if I... If someone I knew wrote a book mm-hmm. and I had worked with them in some capacity, sure. I would probably read that book and be like, I wonder what, if they say anything about me. <laughs> then it's like, oh. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just as I was saying this and like thinking about this. We get Michael Perret's only really good scene. Well, well, in a, in a second, but first, right before that scene happens, a credit comes up that reminded me that Bill Paxton was in the movie and I was like... Fucking Bill Paxton was right there, you motherfuckers. Bill Paxton's part in this movie is great, and I wouldn't want it played by anybody else. He's in, like, three scenes. But he's only in three scenes, and it's Bill fucking Paxton. Like, come on. And he has a dead tooth. Tom meets up with Reva in the diner that she works at. Like I said, this is probably Michael Perret's strongest scene. I would agree with that. And probably the best... Like, the best brawl scene The best the brawl scene in the movie. There is an action scene that happens about midway that's my favorite. Okay. But the uh, but in terms of a brawl, I agree with you. This is quite a good scene. Some some toughs. Some, some toughs come into the toughs. diner. Uh, they're, they're, uh, it's a different gang. Not, it's the, not bombers. the bombers. It's the Roadmasters. Oh. Uh, and they come in, and uh, Reva is completely <laughs> unimpressed because Reva's the coolest person on the motherfucking planet. And she lives in... Shit town in shit town, right next to Shitburg. But yeah, she she t- she tells them the bombers have brought this act already. All you're doing in here is looking like punks, and th- and, and they start to mess up the joint. They're going to mess up the joint. Rape Reva. Yeah, and Tom Cody comes over looking bored as hell, and uh, he does do that well. Yeah, he does have that mainly a little bit because of that swagger. he mainly because he has one face that yeah. he makes the entire time, but it does. In this scene, at least, it looks like he has swagger. He takes the jacket off, revealing those cut-off sleeves, and then he just, like... Slaps a man. Just slaps the shit out of this guy. he keeps slapping him. He literally slaps him into submission. And I fucking love it. It's a great introduction to the character. And then he more traditionally fights the rest of the gang. He picks up a hat hat stand and just starts beating them like a baseball bat. He chucks a guy through a window. It's great. It's a nice little barroom brawl in a diner. Tom takes Reva out of the diner and shows off his hot rod, which Reva tells him he needs to sell to pay for her window that he just Well, I... Isn't that the car that the Roadmasters drove up in? He's oh, like, is this it? is my car now. Oh, I didn't catch that. I think I'm you're right. I'm pretty sure that's... I think you're right. Because he does say that he stole the car. I just didn't pick up that he stole it from them. Yeah. And he did arrive on a train, so why would he have a hot rod outside yeah. the diner? No, it was on a, it was on a carrier car. It was on a, oh okay no, yeah, yeah sure sure no no but yeah he you know he steals his car from the roadmasters because he's the he's the only master of the road in this movie hell yeah and Reva as they're driving away Reva fills him in on the recent kidnapping of Ellen cars pulled over by the only two cops in the city yes it's a John Wickiverse it's a John Wickiverse or again a a western town where you always have just like one sheriff and one deputy that's that's the vibe and we have the classic 80, 80s casting of one white man yep. and one black man one white man one black, and I'm black glad man. We have this uh, black fella here because yeah. we will not see another black person until quite late in the movie. For a while, the black guy—I I forget the actor's name—but he's the, uh, one, the one of the main cast members from the V miniseries from the '80s. And the white guy is the sex-obsessed boyfriend of Sarah Connor's roommate in the first Terminator movie. Okay, is what I know him from, and it appears to be his other biggest role. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but I. <laughs> I assumed you were going to say he was also multiple MIGs in Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 
and I got really excited. <laughs> Multiple Migs comes up so often. Multiple in the show. Migs is the MVP of that film. <laughs> he throws cum at a person. <laughs> he kills himself. Yeah. I mean, fucking, it's a rock star story. It's, it's, it's a yeah, absolutely, it's a rock star story. Uh, multiple Migs, a rock and roll fable. <laughs> we should we should do multiple Migs the musical. Oh my god, multiple Migs going nowhere fast. I throw my cum at you and you and you. Oh my god, and now it's there and there and there. I can smell your cunt from here. <laughs> but yes, uh, the sheriff and the sheriff and his bumbling deputy—they warn Tom because they, they know Tom. He's from around. He's here. from yeah. yeah. Everyone's from around here. Everyone's from around Everyone. here. Where else would you be? And he and he, they warn him that they don't want any trouble out of him. Keep your nose clean, Tom. Even though like they're doing nothing about Raven Shaddix. Yeah, they're doing nothing about him. Well, he's he's out of this movie again. Kind of like what I've heard about the Warriors. They're not really in towns, they're in districts. Okay. They're in sort of like these little fiefdoms, these little areas that, that are, yeah. are these very the very small, close knit areas, they're the precincts well, that, that are considered like one settlement, then there's another settlement, then there's another settlement. The bombers are from a completely different settlement, which I've written the name down of later. Okay. And and so they're Probably the minute they took Ellen out of their out of their little fiefdom, they couldn't take they couldn't go after them. I, I also feel it's more probably a riff on the idea of like, oh, even the cops don't go there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's also that. This this movie is definitely while this movie is uh, definitely at heart a western. There is also an element of like the teen 1950s yeah, teen rebel teen movie. Like what's that one? Uh, there's there's you could definitely catch vibes of Rebel Without a Cause. The wild one. Or the wild one. The blob. Like like also there's definitely elements of that. And this scene with the cops is definitely one of the strongest moments of that. Yeah. It does feel like hey they're pulling James Dean over again. They they're pulling the main characters from the blob over and being like hey no more road racing backwards. Yeah I get a oh my god Tom Cody's here. Oh. Yeah, I get uh, pulled over by cops quite a bit. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, uh, I'm swerving around a lot. Oh, my God. Uh, I think it's just because they know that Michael Paré is in town, and I'm a <laughs> badass, and I'm going to throw some punks through some windows. I oh like my to... God. My, Michael Paré, how did you get into my house? I'm Tom Cody. Oh, I'm sorry. You just said Michael Paré was in town. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I... <laughs> you did. Shit. <laughs> sorry. Wipe all that. <laughs> Wipe all of it. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I, I was I was I was laughing. I like the idea that Michael Pore prefers to think of himself <laughs> as Tom Cody because it's just a better reality. I might try to, to bring Tom in. Cody back in later because we'll see. I like doing that voice. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, fun, a fun impression. It's a fun voice. I like I like that voice. Uh, but yeah, Reva sets Tom up at her place. We get some exposition. I like that Tom is. Po- is is very sex positive about his his sister having sort of relationships yeah. with folks. He's, he's sort of like, I'm not going to be getting in the way of you with some guy, am I? Yeah, I don't like the smell of cum. So uh, if you're <laughs> fucking, like, just let me know. I'll put a clothespin on my snout. Uh, and she's like, Ah, no, I 
I haven't had anybody steady for a while, and he's like, same here. It well, because he's been in the army. Right, yeah. But it turns out Tom and Ellen used to date, and Rivas thinks that they should have stayed together, but they didn't work out, and now Ellen's been dating her manager, Billy Fish, uh, and Tom says that they didn't work out because she was always more interested in going somewhere. Yeah, she was interested in her career. Yes. And not Tom Cody. Right. Roused about. Which... It turns out later she was very interested in Tom Cody. She just wanted him to be okay with her also prioritizing her career. Yeah, it was very much of like, hey, I'm going. Come along with me, friend. Right, and Tom Cody is an asshole, so he didn't want to go along with that. Do you think Walter Hill understands that, like... Tom Cody was super wrong in this situation? No, I don't okay. think he does. I think that, again... You think this was a much more complex situation in his mind? I don't know Walter Hill in real life. So I can only speak to what I have... The vibes I pick up in interviews and the vibes I pick up from this movie itself. So I take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt. I get the sense that Walter Hill is a deeply sexist person. And I believe it. And like in the Wikipedia article that we both read, yes, it's like one of the producers was like, people think Walter has this problem with women. And he yeah. was like, I want to prove him wrong with this one. Right. And it's like, no, if did anything, you with if, your princess peach character, if anything, this movie is more of a thesis statement about why he hates women. And I think, I, th- I think his misunderstanding was like, Oh, my movies don't have enough women. Right. If I put women more in the center, but still yeah. keep doing my shit. Yeah, no, he... This movie feels very much like scripts that another famous woman-hating creative, Gene Roddenberry, uh, would write. Sc- stories in Star Trek that he would write that were stories that he was trying to prove. Hey, I like women. Women are great. Yeah. And they always came off as super misogynistic. Yeah. Because Gene Roddenberry was pathological in his hatred of, of, of ladies. But... And I get very similar vibes from this. He, yeah, so he had gotten kind of a reputation as a woman hater, and then he, he was making this movie, and uh, certain things happened, we'll talk about later, that ended up with it having more women than normal, and I think that he thought, hey, this will prove it, when really, as we go forward, if, hey, if you're in a relationship with someone, and they their career is taking off, and you don't think that the way that your life works and the way that their life works are going to be copacetic. And you think that because of that, the, and, the and, relationship and, and won't the work. relationship won't work. That is valid. That's completely valid. But, but in this situation, the relationship was ended by her because she got that idea and she left in this movie, spoiling it right now, eventually they get back together and then Cody breaks up with her for the exact same reason, and it's treated like a good thing. The only problem with their relationship that made Tom Cody so mad is that she made a decision. If she, The thing, reason why Tom Cody's mad, and the reason why Walter Hill thinks that he's right to be mad, is because a woman made a decision about what she was going to do with her own life okay. that didn't involve him. And that is the real problem with Tom Cody. Gotcha. Uh, once he's making the exact same decision she made, it's the right thing to do. Obviously, because it was always the right thing to do. He's the drifter. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 the man, so he gets to make those choices. But yes, and also I do like that throughout this movie we get many 
verbal callbacks to going nowhere fast. Like she's always wanted to go somewhere. Yeah. That's why they couldn't work. They didn't work out. Tom heads into a saloon and meets up with an old school chum of his, Clyde, played by Bill Paxton. Played by Bill Paxton. The nerdiest Bill Paxton has ever looked. And the highest his hair has ever the been. The highest his hair has He's ever been. He's got a pompadour. He's got the only pompadour wilder than Willem Dafoe's in this movie. Yeah. And he's got like a, a blanked out tooth, as you said. Yeah. And uh, he apparently he and Tom Cody used to get up to some shenanigans in mm. school. And now he's playing full-on Aliens Bill Paxton asshole performance uh, as he sort of razzes a, a bar patron who's this, this young lady. McCoy. McCoy. Tom orders a tequila from Bill Paxton, and we meet McCoy, who I says the, the the real hero of this movie. Absolutely best character. Played by Amy Madigan, who's a tough-as-nails coded lesbian. Uh, the yes. character was originally written as a man whose name was, I believe, like Santos or something like that. Mm, the and wrestler. Maybe. And they, and she came in ostensibly to audition for the sister part and instead gave a big argument for why the, the, the San, Santo character should be... Could uh, be. Could be a woman and that she should play it. And I think at that point... This is the thing I was talk. I meant said that we'd talk about later. Walter Hill said that would prove I don't hate women, and immediately jumped on that. And she becomes the greatest character in the movie. I can see that. Yeah, but I also, and then also rewrote the dialogue for the character to make explicit reference to the fact that even though explicit explicit uh, reference to the fact that the two that he that the main character and this character are not going to have sex. In okay. The movie. Yeah. Okay, that was explicit. Yes. No, not but, explicit reference to her being gay. There are very there are sort of it, she calls herself a soldier. There are subtle re- which she was actually in the military, but also it's used it's as a euphemism. Code. It's code. And also there is a scene again which probably was not probably was not in the script when the character was a man where he says to her she she asks him for a place to stay. Uh do you got a bed somewhere? And he says, "Oh, you looking for a quick tumble?" And she says, "I don't want to." I wrote it down because I love the I love the well, way she talks. We'll get there. Okay, we'll we'll talk about it later. But yeah, um, there's but, no explicit reference to her being gay. That's just a vibe. But I let's give Walter Hill some credit. Okay, even if it was like I'm sure it partly was like, yeah, let's make it a woman. Let's get more women in the movie. Mm-hmm. He still agreed to it. He was like, yeah. still no, like he he, he, he allowed it. He listened to this young actress coming in and talking to him, this established filmmaker, and was like, yeah, okay, that sounds yeah, great. Yeah, he rolled with it. And that's, that's a lot. It's the best. And that, you're right. That is that is a lot. And, and that... And for the, sh- especially for the time yeah. and for the man. And uh, I again... I wish she was the main character of the movie, but I will take any amount of McCoy that I can get Absolutely. in my life. She gets into an argument with Clyde, and Clyde tells her, I don't like your face, get out of my bar. And she turns to Tom and says, you know, everywhere I go, there's always an asshole. And then takes Clyde the fuck out. She knocks him out, <laughs> hops behind the bar, asks Tom what he's drinking, grabs yeah. a bottle of tequila, they hit the road. And then orders Tom out of the bar, come on with me. Uh, they get out of that saloon. It just, what a great introduction to this character. It's wonderful. And oh, like man. you said, the best character in the movie, Amy Madigan, does 
fantastic. I love it. She's She's got this very sort of stoic, grumpy face locked mm-hmm. on her, the entire movie, and it's so good. She is a woman that a man would tell to smile more. Yes, absolutely. She's She gives this, me the same vibes as the drummer from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of like... We are sex bomb and we're here to sell out and shit. You know, like that that yeah. sort of vibe. But yeah. Make uh, you think about death and stuff. Turns out she, McCoy, and Tom are both veterans of a recent war. Are they veterans of a war or were they just in the army? They were... She says that she's here because she ran out of wars to fight. And he says that... She could be like Trax and be a soldier of fortune. That's true. And he says that he was in the military and liked the guns, but didn't win any medals. Yeah. Which makes me think that Tom Cody, if there was a war, committed hella war crimes. Oh, hella war crimes. Him and Tom Savini, (laughs) back to back, just slaughtering civilians. Just slaughtering civilians, left, right, and center. Oh, man. Oh I don't know God. when the Falklands was, but now I'm imagining <laughs> I'm imagining Tom Savini and the character Tom Cody just butchering. <laughs> Tom oh Tom I fully believe Tom Cody is real. Tom 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 yeah. Cody is is a real person in my heart. The Falklands was 82. Okay. So Tom Savini tired of the makeup game. <laughs> missing the shit. Teamed up with Tom Cody, went to this Argentinian island, and just started slaughtering people, not even for America, yeah. in the name of the British government. In the, the British government. Michael Perret lived as Tom Cody for a full three years before this movie came out to prepare for the role. Uh, hey, and it was yeah, during this no, time. I, uh, I, yeah, no, this is, uh, Tom yeah. Cody here, I just wanted to do your house, hope you don't mind. Yeah, that's fine. Are yeah. you guys talking about my movie Streets of Fire? Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. Well, talking about uh, it. you're talking about my war career? I, I guess it, it did come up, yes. Yeah, no, I fought in a lot of wars, I fought in a lot of wars, killed a lot of people. Uh-huh. Sometimes they weren't even like, I don't even really know what a war is, like, what is a war, like... <laughs> If I kill a man in a bar, is that a war? Uh, you're asking some heavy philosophical questions here, Tom. So Perry. let's say I drown a man in a <laughs> urinal. Is that a war? <laughs> where's the, Where's the urinal, and who told you to kill this man? It was in Korea. Okay, where we had a war. We did have a famously we had a war in Korea. Yes, but it was in 1980. I don't think we were having the Korean War at that point. Well, no, but was that a new Korean War? <laughs> Not that anyone's informed me about. Well, I'm beginning to think that there's maybe, a lot you don't know. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm beginning to think that Rambo Two was just based on your life. Maybe <laughs> I haven't seen. It. I don't have a lot of time for movies. Right. Yeah. Too busy I gotta, killing people in urinals. Yeah. Yeah. And just driving cool cars. Yeah. Hanging out with my lesbian buddy McCoy. Yeah. Right. Okay. It took me a while to realize she was a lesbian. Yeah. 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 Ten years. <laughs> She's not exactly subtle about it, dude. <laughs> All right, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> You're cool. Well, we'll see if the see if anyone else thinks that this should have been obvious. In the scene, McCoy asks Tom if he's got a spare bed, and Tom asks McCoy if she wants a quick tumble. She responds with uh, you may have a rough time with this one, and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, you're not my type. <laughs> Which my God. <laughs> it's great. It's great. And, and uh, I just realized reading that line, trying to approximate her voice, this is a Natasha Leone character. Yeah, it's very much, <laughs> very much so. But like, 
kudos, nineteen eighty four, for even yeah. this little bit of representation. Just this and tiny for, bit. I don't want to assume Walter Hill's opinion on people in the community, sure. but I'm sure they're not the best. He did make the assignment. Again, he was like seventy two. He probably didn't even fuck <laughs> he probably doesn't even remember making that movie. He was probably fucking in an iron lung and they're like hey walter we need another movie from you the genius time behind 48 hours like i imagine everyone in the iron lung sounds like darth vader yeah no that's what it does to you that's what it does to you yeah even though your head is exposed right it's just the compression on your lungs your lungs full of that chemical that makes your voice sound that makes your voice sound deep mccoy shacks up with reva and tom and yeah. then they oh, go, and Tom has another great thing here where he's 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 he, he takes it very well. He doesn't he question does. it. He does. He's a bro about he, it. He takes it as well. He's like, ah, it figures I haven't had much luck with women lately. Maybe some other time, huh? And McCoy says, completely deadpan, I doubt it, but anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like she's had this conversation with many yeah, men. Yeah, it's like in the universe of infinite possibilities, maybe, but not in this lifetime. Oh, everything everywhere, all at McCoy. <laughs> I love McCoy so goddamn much. She's the best character. But yeah, Tom volunteers. I say it goes her, yeah, Billy Fish, yep. Raven Shaddix. Raven Shaddix is up there. I I, I don't her, know her. Raven Shaddix, then Billy Fish. I that's I I'm more on board with that list. And then like uh, Reva, like maybe just oh, below yeah. the three. Love of them. me some Reva. Reva then... is uh, my god. Uh, and then Ed Begley Jr.'s character. <laughs> Ed Begley Jr. is in a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, Tom, as he as I said, Tom volunteers his sister's couch to McCoy, and we see that however much he may protest, Tom is not over Ellen. As he he gets ready for bed, he's taking his shirt I'm off. I'm still not over Ellen. I I have a picture. Yeah. You want to know what I do to that picture? Uh, not the way that you said that question. I don't. Are you sure? Uh, if you paid me ten bucks, I'll tell you. Well, now I definitely don't want to. You want to hear the details? Do you fucking know how much gas is right now? I'm not giving you ten bucks to tell me what you do to your picture, pervert. <laughs> I feel like you're insulting me, yeah. but I'm not sure. <laughs> and you know me, I'm a man of peace. Right, yes. So I don't want to assume right. and make an asshole out of you. Right, yes. And then I have to punch you. Yes. Yes, I know that... You're not famously a man with very thick skin, as I will get into later. Uh, but uh, you have thick skin. <laughs> what do you have, psoriasis? <laughs> Thank you. I guess. Tom, I I worry about you a little bit. I, we've we've barely talked. I worry already, about I'm, you. Okay. You look like a diabetic. <laughs> I don't know what that means, Tom. I don't know what that means. All right, we'll just talk about my magnum opus. Okay. Streets okay. of Fire. Streets of I will, I will gladly talk about that, Tom. We, we see, as I said, we see that Tom isn't as over Helen as he claimed uh, and still has her picture in his wallet, which leads into a flashback. Uh, I assume it's a flashback anyway, of another song, Never Be You, written by the great, the late great now, Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flashback inspires Tom to get busy planning to rescue Ellen. And he... Yeah, it inspired me to get busy. <laughs> Ten dollars, I'll tell you what I mean. 
Thank, thank you. No, thank you, Tom. Thank you. No, thank you. Uh, he meets up with a mechanic named Pete, who is essentially, I guess, John Leguizamo's character <laughs> from John Wick. Yeah. We both had the same thought. Yeah. Uh, where he just supplies him with a shit ton of, as he points out, custom weapons. We'll find out later, although this is not explicitly stated, that apparently custom weapons means that they shoot all of them don't shoot bullets, they all shoot grenades. Yeah. I, I wrote down this movie, as what I've already said, but the movie is a perfect fusion of a Western and a 50s troubled youth movie, and I love it so much. Tom meets up with Billy Fish. Yes. And uh, says that he's going to go get Helen, and he wants 10 grand. Ellen. Sorry, yes, I keep making that mistake. He, he's going to go rescue Ellen, and he wants 10 grand. Mm, that's uh, reasonable. Sure, why not? That's That's... <laughs> You know, when the first Donkey Kong arcade machines came out, right. you had to insert 10 grand <laughs> in order to get Mario to go up that fucking scaffold. Still in quarters. So you had to have, yeah. like, just like, it was oh it was like God. those photos of the poor Germans right before World War II, just wheelbarrows of quarters taking over to the arcade, and you just had to keep putting them in. And you still only it got three took, lives. It took two hours to play one game of Donkey Kong. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Billy Fish is so rich and so... Uh, out of touch with 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 the rest of people that 10 grand doesn't even make him bat an eye he says he says 10 grand and he doesn't even blink he's like easy <laughs> yeah. he says that's easy but it should but be you need to but he says i'm not going to i'm not going to pay if i if i don't see results however sorry what were you about to say we also learned that billy fish is also a local yes he is he, well he he came from the town not this area but the area that the bombers are native to this yes. horrifying hellscape that the bombers rule with an iron fist and he calls it the shits yes he said that place is the shits it's it's called the battery this is where i wrote yes. down was the, the area is called the battery so tom knows that billy's from there and he says he needs a guide billy says you couldn't pay me to go back there it's the shits and this is he only says it twice Yes. But this is basically Billy's catchphrase. It and is I basically love it. his catchphrase. I yes. love it. And Rick Moranis gets to be an asshole, and it's wonderful. I don't remember what we were talking about in a recent podcast where I was talking about Oh, it was it was Buckaroo Banzai. Okay. When we talked about Buckaroo Banzai, we said that uh, our favorite actor in that movie, what's his name? John Lithgow. John Jonathan Lithgow has this Shakespearean ability to take the very odd language that's used in that movie and deliver it like it is poetry. Yes. And he is and he does it in a way that none of the other great actors in that movie yeah. seem to manage to be able to capture. That's how I feel about Rick Moranis in this movie. I, I agree with the you. The dialogue in this movie is similar to Similar to Buckaroo Banzai, very arch. It's not written from a place of this is how people talk. It's yeah. written from a this place of... This is written of, how like an Archie character talks. Uh, yeah, like it's just a collection of, of cliches. That's the best description of this movie. It's, it's like uh, R-rated Archie. Yes, that is a great way to... And not like Riverdale, like good R-rated no, Archie. Like, <laughs> if Archie had a gun. If Archie... <laughs> if Archie were in the universe of warriors, that's, yes. that's what this movie is. But yeah. So, but no, he, the, the dialogue and, is all like, like he and, and, and Rick Moranis are going back and forth with this patter and, kind of talk. And Reva's like, I can see you two aren't going to get along. Like everything's spoken in trailer lines and Rick Moran and, and 
Michael Poray says this stuff and it sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, it's Michael Poray. fucking falls on the floor. It falls on the floor. Rick Moranis makes this sing Because again, he's a fucking comedian. Like Pete Postlethwaite speaking Shakespeare. Yeah. It's poetry. Like he's a comedian. He can... He's an improv... I think he's an improv guy. Uh, yeah, um, no. All, his he's most, a sketch dude. His like, most famous character, the Strange Brew characters, yeah. were created just because on the sketch comedy show that he invented them those characters for, he and his partner invented those characters for, they were told they needed a certain amount of Canadian content. Gotcha. So every episode they would just improvise those characters for however long was so left like, in the episode. He, he, he gets a script... Yeah. Which uh, did not arouse the best confidence in a lot of the people involved, including no. Jim Steinman, yeah, who wrote who's, the two big songs. He, Jim Steinman read the script, told them honestly, I don't think this is very good, and they said, don't worry, it's the visuals that are going to make the film, which as a fan of the movie, they're right. But yes. also, like... But Rick yeah. Moranis, Rick Moranis has the chops yeah. to be able to take this and sell it the way he needs to sell it. Yeah. Amy Madigan, as McCoy, is selling it in an entirely different way. I would agree. She's a part of the universe. Yeah. Billy Fish is almost like, yeah, I understand what's going on, and it's fucking stupid. Yes. Yeah, no, not not that we're saying Rick Moranis is saying that. No. We're saying Billy Fish Billy is Fish saying that. is above this two-fisted adventure. He didn't even want to come to this town. This is yeah. charity work for him. He doesn't want to go back to his fucking roots, no. the shit place. He got out of there. He doesn't want to go back. We're, that would be going nowhere fast, man. But uh, if, uh, Billy Fish hires him. And after some Tom, arm twisting, he agrees to go along and, and be the the thing. They cut McCoy in for ten percent. Ten percent. They cut McCoy in for ten percent. Rick Moranis is. Uh, I'm sorry, Billy Fish is immediately dismissive yes. to uh, McCoy. He says, "Why are we bringing some skirt along?" Which uh, I love McCoy so much. It was one of those things like drawing in Aunt uh, Emily's book, uh, where I was Lucy. Aunt, I made the same mistake. Uh, Aunt Lucy's book. Where I just was like wanted to jump through the screen and strangle yeah. Billy Fish the minute he I, started being mean to McCoy. I wish, <laughs> and Grant McCoy does it again later. McCoy, but I wish McCoy can stand up for motherfuckers herself. out more. I do kind of wish that, but McCoy stands up for herself. She gives more than she she gets. She gives as good as she gets oh, to yeah. Billy later. Uh, but yeah, Billy says that if Ellen is anywhere, she will be in Torchies, a club in the middle of a factory, an abandoned yes. factory in the Battery that has no class, and is, in fact, the, the shits. shits. I uh, wish you said it more. Again, he I only do, says it twice, I but... I want, desperately, I want a TV show of Streets of Fire... Oh, hell yeah. ...where Nowhere Fast is the theme song, and every episode you just have, like, this character at least once per episode, it's the shits. Or not uh, even... I, he shouldn't be, like, a regular, but he should be recurring. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, every so often, like, he's managing a lot of acts, so, like... Yeah. Oh, fuck, because, I gotta bring Tom Cody back in. Right, because Tom Cody's a drifter. He's not gonna be every, yeah. the same place every episode, but he'll keep running into them because they keep traveling around, yeah. and the relationship with Ellen will go through highs and lows yeah. and everything. I, yeah, uh... If that show had been made in the eighties, it would have sucked. But oh, I, yeah. I like I can dream. I can dream. We can dream. We can dream about it. Da, da, da. Uh, so they go to the battery. Yes, Billy and Billy questions 
uh, how they're supposed to take on a whole gang of thugs on motorcycles. Because if you start killing bombers, they're already going to be in worse... In, again, incredible line delivery from Rick Moranis. If you start killing bombers, they're going to be in worse shape than... We're going to be in worse shape than we're already in. And in my favorite line delivery Michael Perret has in the whole movie, it's not good, but it's still... It's an incredible line. He says... We don't have to, I don't have to kill anybody. Motorcycles don't run so high once you shoot holes in them. Uh, uh, and again, let's let's before we move on and we yeah. need to get moving. Yes. But I love it that this is fucking Rick Moranis yeah. and he is constantly going toe to toe with Michael Perret. A very sort of he has a bit of a himbo vibe going on. Yes. Yeah. Grant, he has the patchy mustache, but he has the mm-hmm. look, he has the swagger, mm-hmm. and here is Billy Fish just giving him shit. At every turn. And there's a little bit of jealousy we're going to see like between yeah. him and the Ellen Aim stuff. Yeah. But it's almost more narcissistic than anything. Oh, like, it's definitely more narcissistic. And Billy we'll see later definitely on. thinks he's on the same level as Tom Cody. Absolutely. And fucking great. It's only like in the second half of the movie that any kind of insecurity creeps into yeah. Billy. Really, Billy just thinks that he is the most powerful man in the world, as we will see later on when he's involved in another in- situation with a strong person yes. who is not... Uh, who's not Tom, I will say, in a bit of a disappointing turn, I found out that Michael Poray and Rick Moranis really did not get on yeah, well on uh, the set. Rick Moranis would just, like, roast Michael Poray. Well, roast so Michael it, was, it was an actual, like, art-imitating-life situation. Shit. But also, like, at first I was like, oh, it's not, it's not cool that Rick Moranis was bullying this young actor who hadn't really had a lot of work before, but I, I read more into it that's not what was going on. This story is from Michael Perret, by the way. He's saying, in real life, you can just beat up people who make fun of you. I didn't understand. He's saying in movies you can just do that. No, he said in, he said in life. Oh. Uh, he said in life if, if somebody was insulting you. But you can't do that to comedians. And then he's, uh, he said, and Rick Moranis was insulting me, and he's a guy who couldn't get laid in a whorehouse with a fistful of 50s, which immediately raised a red flag for me. And then he gave an example of one of the insults, which was Rick Moranis, upon meeting him, saying, are you really that cool, or do you just act cool? Which just sounds like something I would say, or Brad would say, which sounds to me like maybe Rick Moranis was just lightly joking around the whole time, and Michael Poray is so thin-skinned and unable to take a joke that he thought that like he call, he in this in this quote he calls Rick Moranis an insult comic which is so I don't know it just it immediately was like oh I don't have to feel bad about Rick Moranis I just don't think Michael Poray is is very in touch with reality but whatever. As they're driving along into the battery, the scenery, again, in this movie is drop-dead gorgeous. Our heroes post up outside of Torchies. Inside, a band, the only band that plays itself in the movie, The Blasters, is uh, performing a song called One Bad Stud. <laughs> Not one of my favorites. Oh, I like it. I. It's fine. It's yeah. a good rockabilly song. Yeah, no. But at the same time, like... Oh, I'm not a big fan of Rockabilly, oh, which is like going to be a problem for the movie we cover next. Oh, I can't wait. I, I actually quite like Rockabilly. But the Blasters... I like Rockabilly too, but yeah. like, oh, after Nowhere Fast, I'm like, mm-hmm. give me more meatloaf shit. Oh, fair, fair enough. Yeah, understood. Um, but it does fit for the vibe of the for scene. For the vibe of the scene, and yeah. And you have a 
lady stripping naked. Mm-hmm. She's apparently the the body double from Flashdance. Is the one doing the, the the stripper dance? Cool. Yeah, we said that McCoy is the real hero of the movie and a real human being, and and she is. But the star of the movie enters the scene now, which is Willem Dafoe's leather overalls. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, these are fucking amazing. Fucking amazing. I'm pretty sure I saw these in the trailer, and that's I think one of the so. things that sold me on it. I, I remember like, us talking what? about them. A lot before we watch the movie. They're kind of, they, they just, they're kind of like, they remind me of Barbara Crampton's fetish wear from From Beyond. It comes right up to the nipples, but doesn't quite cover them. Yes, but the straps cover the nipples. The straps cover the nipples. And it's like, this is all he's wearing, and it's like... In the scene, yeah. And like, I, I can't... My God, it's so sexual. And again, <laughs> for a man who is not trying to make, like, a, <clears throat> a fetishy movie... Yeah. Somehow he landed on the most fetish fucking thing I've ever seen where it's just yeah. a man in nipple high pleather overalls. Absolutely. It's it's And he he hey, rocks them. He it's, fucking rocks them. Willem Dafoe's hot in this movie, man. You're like Raven Shaddix Ra- Raven Raven Shag me. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Raven Shaddix has been keeping Ellen tied to a bed, still wearing her dress from the concert for Here's however <laughs> many days it's been. Yeah, exactly. Been Here's my question that I, I should have brought up earlier. Yeah. How many days? Reva sends a fucking letter to town. (laughs) Yes. So like how like how long has this been going on? Like yeah, it's it's not made explicit how long it's been, what they've been doing to Ellen, if anything. Uh, But we 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 see in this scene that Raven comes in and forces a kiss on her, and he says that he wants. Ellen to be his willing lover for a couple of weeks. Good on him. And that he, if she gives in, he'll eventually let her go. So apparently, she they haven't done anything to her, and he's not going to do anything to, to her until he gets explicit consent. Kidnapping? Bad. Yes. Um, basically threatening someone? Yeah. Bad. Yes. But still being like, hey. Yeah. I don't want it unless you want it. Right. Points for Raven Shaddix. I guess. <laughs> like the 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 most the same kind of points we give to Walter Hill. The mo the same kind of points I give to the cop from up, I guess. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so uh but I also El- want Ellen, to point out. Ellen is having none of it. She's standing up for herself, even though she's tied to a bed. And uh, Raven continues forcing kisses on her in the scene before leaving to go and enjoy boys' poker night. Now you know yeah. that the forced kiss is something that neither of us like. No, whenever we don't it happens, like it. we don't like it. Yeah. But usually the forced kiss, when we don't like it, comes from the good guy. Yeah, that's kind so of the part it's, it's that sort of I nice. Hate. It's yeah. sort of nice that, like, it's not good. No. But, like, in this movie, for the most part, I think, yeah, the forced kisses come from the baddie. It's kind of like point that I made when we were reviewing Street Fighter where Sarugi sells a woman into sex slavery and Sarugi is the main character of the film mm. but we're never meant to think of Sarugi as anything but a villain. No, but usually forced kisses are a good guy thing. It's yes. Like, and that's, uh, You don't yeah. know you're in love with me yet. In this movie, the forced kiss is thing. a bad guy thing and that honestly makes it a lot better. I also want to point out that the piano player for the band at Torchies has very rich Evans as Mr. Plinkett vibes. Yes. And he's also great. He's just like a great piano sure. player. Outside, Tom and his posse pile out of the car. They travel into the steam-filled factory area where they meet a homeless dude played by Ed Bagley Jr. <laughs> uh, named 
Ben Gunn in the credits after the uh, the uh, person on the island in Treasure Island. Oh, okay. Yeah, is a person left behind by uh, the old pirate crew. Now, I'd say he's probably fourth on my favorite characters. He is incredible. <laughs> and he's just Ed begling it up. He's just Ed begling it up. having so much fun. He's, he's the other... Like... I will say he's the other actor, aside from Rick Moranis, who gets how to deliver this dialogue yes. the best. And he has some of the greatest lines where he... he uh, Rick Moranis is just, like, insulting the shit out of him. And he just looks at him like... And he says, oh, you're dumb. And short. Real short. <laughs> he... <laughs> He reminds me of the three, uh, the three witches from uh, Scotland, PA. One, it reminds me of the drifter that Homeboy meets in Halloween Three. Yes, yes, and yeah. two, Edge Begley handles Rick Moranis better than Tom Cody does. <laughs> He does. And Ed Begley's like smeared with chimney soot like Just fucking Dick Van Dyke. Literally. Like, yeah, he's got like, I don't know if they put in contacts, but something about the way his eyes are are just like super piercing in this. Maybe Ed Begley just has beautiful eyes and I never He noticed. does have beautiful eyes. Uh, but yeah. Uh, I have them in my dresser. Uh, he says, uh, and as they give, as they pay him for the information, he gives them the same information that Billy Fish already gave them, and they still make Billy Fish pay yeah. him for the information. And, and Billy Fish even like says, he like says that I said they were at Torchies. I said they were at Torchies. Why are we? <laughs> it's great. The most relatable Billy Fish is in the entire film. But uh, as as they give him the money, he says, "Keep." Gotta keep, hey, gotta keep moving forward. That's the whole point of things. Again, going nowhere fast is yeah. the is the theme of the movie. I uh, also want to point out that this op is taking place at 10 p.m. Is it really? Yes. <laughs> okay. Which is not very late. No, but it's like it's, in the dead of night. But it's also night. so high school. It's like, yes. oh my god, 10 p.m., the witching hour. <laughs> yeah, my curfew's at 11, so we gotta go blow up motorcycles at 10. That's right. You're, you are still a teenager after all these years. I joined the army at 13 like it's the fucking Civil War. <laughs> Tom sends Billy to get the getaway car and be, meet them back there at fi in 15 minutes. Yep. While McCoy... Uh, and he work on taking on the bombers directly. McCoy heads in the front while Tom sneaks around the back. And let let me point this out about the bombers. Mm -hmm. If I if I can say one thing about them, say what you want. They love driving their motorcycles back and forth incessantly in front of torches. Yeah, well, sometimes they go off a ramp. This something you have to know about the bombers is they're not just like a gang. They are a standing army. Yes, there's there's like a a hundred of these motherfuckers. So some of them are inside. Torchies having a grand old time in the poker table, enjoying the stripper, enjoying the band. But you know, you don't want to, you don't want to break fire code. So yeah. a lot of them are outside, just doing tricks on their motorcycle in front of Torchies. Exactly. So yeah. Tom posts up on a roof. Tom posts up on a roof. The boy goes inside, and yeah. she gets accosted by. A horny dude. A horny dude. The Blasters are now playing a song called Blue Shadow. Uh, McCoy goes along with this horny dude and allows him to take her into the back and then pistol whips the shit out of him. Knocks out another motherfucker. To knocks out another motherfucker so she can go and, and, and I thought search for Ellen, but it turns out she just no, wanted to... No, McCoy... McCoy's part of this plan makes no sense. This whole plan makes no sense. Like... Because she's going to go to the poker room yeah. and hold up Raven Shaddix. Yes. That not even take their money. No. Which, you should have taken their money. McCoy totally should have taken that money. should have taken their she money. She should have been like, because they're offering her the money. They're like, yeah, yeah take the money and they're if not, you're holding us up. And they're, not, oh, and they're not above that. They steal from cops later. But like they... So it's like, McCoy should have been like, 
I'm not here for your money. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'll take it. But yeah, but she she bursts in on the poker game, holds him at gunpoint. Raven is not impressed. Unimpressed and seems disappointed by this. Like Raven's character is petty larceny. Fascinating. You could be so much more. Willem Dafoe's performance has such internal life to him it and I does. fucking love it. Raven Shaddix would be the big bad yeah. and the dragon yeah. of the series. Raven Shaddix is ostensibly from his actions just some gang leader, just some punk, but like the way Willem Dafoe plays him, he is Darth Vader. He is like he is like the samurai lord that that Lone Wolf and Cub need to face at the end of their journey. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Tom is posted up on a building as a sniper. He catches sight of Ellen tied to the bed and starts sniping bikers off. Each of his bullets makes the bikes explode. Makes the bikes explode. They're exploder cycles. They're explode. <laughs> Coming this fall, Exploder Cycles. Oh my god, TM, I'd watch that movie so fast. By Yamaha. Uh, but yeah, they... they but the, yeah, he, the, like you said, he has rocket bullets. Rocket bullets. And nobody dies. It's very nobody 18, dies. where it's like everyone manages to get they, off the bike before it explodes. The explosions in this movie are the best kind of explosions. They are spectacular. They are so much flash. And here's where, like, I said it when I watched it with you. Yeah. I say it when I watch it by myself. I go, yeah. Streets. Of fire. <laughs> In my head, I kept thinking I wrote this as my letterbox review. It's the dumbest joke, but just like a takeoff of that one scene from Friends uh, where Joey's reading Little Women and he's just like, These streets, how of fire are they? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Tom's, but he's, he's, Tom's... he's sniping these bikers off. There's tons of practical explosions. And then, this is where the whole plan falls apart. Tom teleports inside and rescues Ellen. It's a cool scene because he gets, he whips out a pocket knife and like... There was an earlier butterfly knife thing yeah, before. With, with the, with the Roadmasters. So yes. he, he took the butterfly knife from the Roadmasters. He cuts her bonds. They get her out of there. Uh, McCoy psychically realizes that Tom Cody got Ellen out and she's like... Uh, bye fuckers or whatever she says and, and leaves and she does not say bye fuckers she doesn't I wish but she did. that's the energy of what she says our heroes run and fight their way out of the building they're punching people this is the best action set piece of the movie for my money yes especially once Tom Cody gets outside yes he tells them you guys get out because I... Rick Moranis has driven up in the car yes he sends uh, McCoy and Ellen along with him he's just like yeah I'm gonna stay here and rough I... these boys up a little uh -huh. bit more I, Tom Cody, alone am going to take on an entire army of fucking bikers and win while you guys get away. And this... This is not a self-sacrifice. He's just He just wants that, to fucking fight people. He's just that powerful. Uh, and then, yes, he, he just starts, like, taking his rifle like a bat and knocking fuckers off of their bikes. He whips his rifle around like like Arnold Schwarzenegger in T2, just uh, just cracking that uh, that reloader and then... Lever action. That lever action, thank you, I don't know guns, and, and firing it at, at tanks of gas, exploding motorcycles. Yeah, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of I, I myself. Just, I just want to point out that during the sequence... Yeah. Tom, again, Tom Cody is single-handedly taking on this gang. Yeah. Because conveniently, the gang does not fight together. No. Tom Cody just, like, starts beating up on one of them. Yeah. And you think that a gang would understand that, like... Yeah. If we banded our forces together, <laughs> maybe we could take on someone who is more powerful than us 
as an individual. Yeah. No, they don't no. do that. It, but yes, it's, it's Tom Mar- Cody ends up blowing up the entirety of the battery. It's martial arts movie rules. They all just sort of like sort of walk from side to side in a in a holding pattern yeah. until one of them falls and then another one comes. But in yeah, uh, Tom spilling gas slot. and then he shoots the pump Explodes and fucking everywhere. Blo- blows up Torchies. And, and then, all I can imagine. And granted, I realize now that Torchies is in the middle of an abandoned warehouse. Yes, probably does not have an official proprietor. Yes, but I just imagine some poor. Small business owner who's like <laughs> whose bar got taken over by the bombers and was like oh no it's just unimaginable first the bombers now the bomb i'm imagining that character who ran the the uh the soda shop in happy days just sort of coming out there being like oh my god you kids what have you done to my place uh and they're like, no it's do the right thing <laughs> It's fucking Danny Aiello. And the and the bombers are just like, sit on it, Potsy. But yeah, uh, Tom steals a bike, is about to get away, and then Raven gets his coolest scene in the movie as he walks, still in his pleather overalls, out of the fire, looking around with the face of someone who has finally met a worthy opponent. Just yes, this chaos. Chaos. Finally. Spider-Man! They called it the battery, but I've never seen any battery here until today. (laughs) Until today. uh, Finally, I've met my match. He comes up and is just this operatic villain moment, and he says, he tells Tom, I said, what's your name? And Tom says, Tom Cody. He says, Oh, you have two first names? That's dumb. (laughs) He says, I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you too. And Tom replies... Oh, this would be such a good Donkey Kong movie. Oh my god, such a good Donkey Kong But Tom replies, yeah, and I'll be waiting. And Raven smiles like this is exactly what he wanted. It's We're going to see this in the final fight. Yeah. But anytime Raven like, is so cool. <laughs> it's like Willem Dafoe immediately clocks Michael Paré as not a good actor. And he's yeah. like, shit. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to really fucking try. Yeah, yeah, So I don't look like shit, like, in scenes with you. Willem Dafoe in this movie is, like, the the villain from the Hunchback of Notre Dame Disney movie. Like, he's that that much... Frollo? Frollo, yeah. Like, that levels of epic villainy in this performance. Uh, The co-writer of the movie, Larry Gross, said that he thought Willem Dafoe was the best part of this movie. Mm. One of them. One of them, yeah, definitely. Uh, McCoy, Raven Shaddix, the music... The cinematography, the choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of good. There's in this there's movie. a lot of greatness in this movie, but Willem Dafoe is uh, always the best. As far as is one of the best parts of any movie he's in. Again, so of course. like here's what's interesting about acting is we both agree that Amy Madigan is fantastic as McCoy. Absolutely, and we agree that Rick Moranis is fantastic as Billy Fish. Absolutely, and we agree that Willem Dafoe is fantastic as Raven Shattuck. Yes, they are all three doing different types of acting. That's incredible. That's incredibly accurate. Yes, because Amy Madigan is like, I'm going to live in this world. Yeah, Rick Moranis is like, I'm going to be above this world. Well, that's what the character calls for. Yeah, and Willem Dafoe is going, I'm going to own this world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to be king shit. I of fuck mountain. I am Emperor Palpatine in this universe. Yes. Yeah. No, he's he. Yeah, absolutely. More shot as they get away. More shots of the incredible city sets. Now, I will say, in the back half, I feel like the movie does kind of fall off a bit for me. I, because I still enjoy it. The especially movie turns into a completely different movie in the back half. At parts, yeah, I still enjoy a lot of it. 
Well, in in the first the first half of the movie is again this this is a this is a collection of movies that Walter Hill saw when he was a kid. So yeah. the first half of this movie is the Searchers. It's uh, it's this yeah. like, hey this woman was kidnapped by uh, a violent evil force. We have to go and we have to get her back. Uh, in the in the logic of the Searchers, okay, uh, using the logic of the movies being made in this second half of the movie is stagecoach it's the okay. it's the long or, or silverado it's the long wagon train journey back. now we got to get ellen aim back we, to the stage we're traveling through enemy territory we are uh it's a collection of kooky characters yeah. all together in this in this oh, enclosed environment the most important character of the film soon most important character coming through uh because they have even though it took them Barely five seconds to get to the Torchies. Apparently, there's so much battery they have to travel through to get back to. I think Richmond is the name of their place. <laughs> no, I, what this movie is is the Warriors again. Like there they you have go. to get home. There you go. They have to get home. As it turns out, Billy, this whole movie didn't know that Ellen and Tom used to be a thing uh, okay. until he's told yeah. in this scene by Mc and McCoy, realizing that she now has something to fuck with Billy about, yeah. decides that that is going to be her life's goal to make <laughs> Billy feel as insecure as possible by just like, even though she doesn't know shit about the relationship between Ellen and Tom, yeah. aside from a couple lines she shared with Reva earlier, she go keeps telling Billy what a great love story for the ages Tom and Ellen yeah. shared. Uh, just making Billy feel as small as possible. And again, kudos to the character of Billy. Like, mm -hmm. again, he gets baited a bit, but it's so he's so narcissistic that yeah. he's still like, I'm better than him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, immediately, immediately. He, be, like, this is definitely the smallest we get to see Billy, but he's still Billy. He's yeah. still he's still Billy the fish. As I I refuse to call him anything but uh, that. Ellen does take Tom aside and wants to bury the hatchet from their relationship, but Tom is too much of an asshole to let that happen. Yeah, I, I just thought, you know, like, I could do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, right. I meet a lot of women. Sure. I yeah. met... As this uh, movie keeps insisting. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, name a woman. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres. I met her. Oh, cool. Name another one. Um, uh, I can only think of... <laughs> can only think of Ellen DeGeneres now for some reason. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. I met her. You met Oprah I Winfrey. I met all of the women. You met all all of the women. Name a third one. Uh, Raven Simone. I met her. Cool. All right. Uh, anyway. Name a fourth one. <laughs> I, I think we're done with this segment. <laughs> in the first non in first and only non-diegetic musical number of the movie, as our heroes travel on foot through what appears to be a red light district out of the Blade Runner universe, uh, Ellen sings Sorcerer by Stevie Nicks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they run into a young lady named Baby Doll. The most important character in the film. <laughs> Vital. Crucial. Crucial. If you want to understand any of the themes or symbolism <laughs> in this movie, you Baby Doll is your Rosetta Stone. Learn cinema, learn Baby Doll. Yes. Uh, she's played by E.G. E. Daly. E.G. Daly, famous. The voice of Tommy Pickles. Voice of Tommy Pickles, also the voice of Buttercup of the original three Powerpuff Girls. And again, she comes up and says, uh, "Hey, who are you guys? Where are you going?" And uh, and uh, Billy the Fish or Billy Fish responds, "We're nobody, going nowhere." Again, going nowhere yep. fast. Uh, Baby Doll turns out is a big fan of Ellen, has recognized her, mm -hmm. and lets them know that the cops are after them for burning down torchies. Which the fact that there are any cops who care about anything in this illegal happening in this movie yeah. does not make sense to me. Although they do explain it that the cops are just like basically another gang, yeah. which I mean, 
They are. They are, yeah. But, like, in this movie's universe as well, they are also that. And they're just kind of looking to, uh, you know, fuck with people. Yeah. But, yes. Uh, so they beg for a ride from a man that they run into with a van named Bird, who's a driver uh, and a member, a driver for the band and also a member of the band called the Sorrells. And I love the Sorrells. And the, the Sorrells, Sorrells are, are made up of some very familiar actors. Yeah, a bunch of character um, actors, none of which do the actual singing for the Sorrells. No, unfortunately. And there's a... We'll get it into we'll, it We'll get end. into it as we go, yeah. But I just want to... Some of the Sorrells. McKelty Williamson, who mm-hmm. played Bubba in Forrest Gump. Awesome. Robert Townsend, a very big figure in the 80s, mm-hmm. most known for his movie Hollywood Shuffle. Okay. Stoney Jackson. Mm-hmm. Grand Bush. Uh, Stoney Jackson is their leader, their mm-hmm. front man, Bird, and the mm-hmm. rest are the backing singers. Yeah. One I of them, love I don't, the Sorrells. I don't remember which one of them. One of them is one of the two Agent Johnsons from the first Die Hard. Okay. Uh, so there's there's that as well. But uh, yeah, no, the Sorrells are great. They're again, they're in this broken down mystery machine van. Yeah. And they're 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 as they mention, uh, because at first, of course, as you might be, they're a little bit peeved that they get kidnapped because after asking Bird nicely to use his van, they just hold them at gunpoint and take yeah. their van. They, they're annoyed by being taken hostage, but then they realize that they're with Alan Aim. Holy shit! And they're L&A. like, hey, do you need an opening act? Yeah, because they they decide to turn this kidnapping into a networking opportunity. Might as well. Hey, that's that hustle, man. That's exactly. that hustle. All about that hustle. They perform a great, a song I really enjoy called yeah. Countdown to Love. Yeah, the, uh, sort of a doo-wop number. Sort yeah, of, uh, a sort of doo-wop, and they're doing it acoustically, obviously, because yes. they're in the van. Yes. And my big disappointment is on the soundtrack, it is a full instrumental version. Like, oh, no. uh, like It's not the acoustic version. It's still it's still a great doo-wop song. Yeah. Um, but I, I want I want that version from the movie. It, it has all this cheesy synth in it. Yeah. And it's, Which makes sense because it is a soundtrack of Streets of Fire. But like, at the same the time... 80s, yeah. In the movie, the Sorrell's vocals are performed by a man called Winston Ford. Okay. Who just fucking... Worked at a Radio Shack. Oh my God! And good for Winston Ford. Yeah, but not so good for Winston Ford is the big number the Sorrells do at the end. Mm-hmm. On the soundtrack, it's not his version. Countdown to Love is his version. Okay, uh, and I believe he also had a backing group because it it's a doo-wop number. He has a backing group. Sure, but yeah, no, they performed the song. I love it. It's yeah. and even McCoy loves it. She she's driving the bus. Yes. and she goes. <laughs> It's pretty good, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> McCoy is hard to impress, but you know, when she likes something, she likes something. But uh, and she's she's also a big fan of Ellen Aim. When she meets her as they're running out of torches, she's like, she's like, "Hey, big fan!" <laughs> they're going out there. Uh, but yeah, our heroes encounter a police barricade. They have Billy go and like sort of try and talk them out. But Billy, uh, Billy tries again, to, like no fucking fear in the face. Absolutely of not. Not like he's not like. Oh man, I don't know what to do, Tom. What do I do? Right. No. Billy is a fucking. Billy has he's nothing, not a good man, but he's a man. He has nothing but confidence in himself. He he goes right up he's to them. Smooth as shit. They come on board the bus. They're yeah. like. He's like, eh, yeah, no, I'm manager for the Sorrells. You never heard of the Sorrells? Like, yeah. so do we got a problem here? Do we need to come to some sort of financial solution? He's like, hey, I, I don't, uh, hey, I, all I know is we, we're late for a gig. So do, do we, do, do you have some, something you want to say? Or do we, can I come to some sort of financial arrangement or something like that? Like, all, absolutely in control of the situation mm-hmm. at all times. The cops do accept a bribe almost immediately. But then they're like, hey, but- 
why did you want to bribe us so bad? Yeah, they're like, hey, and then they, they I do think that they make explicit reference to the race of the Sorrells. Yeah, say, oh like, no, they do. They yeah, call they, them a, a very old slur. Yeah, that I did uh, not recognize and didn't write down, because why would I? It, it's like from the 30s. Gotcha. The weird thing about this, this movie's available for rent on Amazon Prime, which is how I watched it, and it's not available with subtitles. So really? there were a couple of lines I wanted to read because I wasn't sure of what they said, and you just can't, yeah, so so they, they decide, hey, we're cops. Here are some black people. Let's do what comes naturally. So they're, and so all hell breaks loose. They're about and everyone to, breaks from the plans like, let's beat up some cops. They're about to fuck up some shit. And in a scene that has aged incredibly well, like fine fucking wine, Tom and McCoy are like, well, plan B, and whip out, <laughs> whip out their cannons and just start bullying the shit out of these cops. Yeah. They just, like, you have, they have them drop their guns, they have them lie on the ground, they steal all of their wallets, and then they just start blowing up their cars, running over their cars with the van. It was so fucking satisfying yeah it was great <laughs> it was great and like the only thing that could have made it better is if the sorrells also got to bully the cops i understand yes. they're not the heroes of this movie but that would have made me happy so happy but yes unfortunately because of the kind of movie this is they don't kill the cops and so the cops are alive and then they get to call and they call in which means that now after already having to dub they already had to dump uh, the the hot rod that they were driving to go they now into have the battery. To dump the they now bus. have to drop the bus and make the rest of their way on foot. Uh, they grab a subway ride the rest of the way, and the Sorrells are, you know, struggling musicians. They yeah, left like, all their their equipment, their all clothes. their their clothes, all their sheet music in the car. All because of these honkies. All because of these fucking honkies, man. McCoy valiantly tries to wingman Tom with Ellen, but loses her temper too easily when Ellen doesn't acquiesce to that which i thought was a cute scene i yeah. uh, mccoy mccoy doesn't know how much of a dick tom is she only knows that tom has been nice to her so she thinks that ellen's being unreasonable but no it is tom who's being unreasonable uh our heroes return to town they march right into the police precinct and file a report on ellen's kidnapping and rescue as you do uh, as you do after you've burnt down a quarter of the city <laughs> Uh, Ellen and Billy go to leave town immediately with Ellen telling Tom that she hates him for taking money to save her. Mm -hmm. Fair. Yeah. Because, especially because Tom has been holding that fact over her like, oh yeah, I would have let you die, but you know, I like money. Like, he's been really playing that up as they've been traveling. Yeah. Uh, Ra Raven gets a meeting with the police officer in charge, whose name is Officer Price. This is the guy from V that we mentioned. Okay. Officer Price, he gets a meeting with Officer Price, and he says, me and two of my boys are coming into town, and we're going to kill Tom Cody. If you let me do it, you won't have any further trouble from me. Uh, so do your job, man. Keep the peace. Which is, especially in light of recent events at the time of recording this, fucking haunting. Tom is depressed because he's too much of a dick to make things work with Ellen. McCoy tries to cheer him up, but Tom just starts being a dick to her, too. Yep. Uh, and drives her away. And then Reva says, the smartest thing anyone says in the whole movie, you and Billy are just the same. You're both selfish. Yeah. Uh, and then the scene cuts her off before she can continue to beat sense into her brother. Is it here where we start to get the rumblings of the Reva-McCoy relationship? Or at least the attraction? Um, 
I never got any rumblings of that relationship. Really? Was That's that... a lie. We both talked about this when we first saw okay, it. Okay, not at this that... viewing then, and I forgot okay. about it. No, I definitely shipped Reva and McCoy. Like, they I have mean, some I, moments. I would absolutely love to see a relationship there. Uh, I think that the biggest moment we got we already skipped over is when Michael's going to get... Hit, sorry, Tom is going to get his guns. They are... It keeps cutting back to a scene of Reva and... Coy walking out of the apartment together and just sort of yeah. talking about Tom's history. But no, I definitely got I definitely got Reva McCoy vibes. I mean, I would love that. They are fantastic and they would be fantastic together. We definitely talked about this on the first view. I'm sure that we did. I just I didn't remember. But Officer Price shows up to tell Tom what Raven has planned and tells him to get out of town and leave Raven to him. We've transitioned to the third Western we're making a mo- we're making into this movie. Of, and of course, it's high noon. Yes. Uh, Tom goes up to see Ellen before she leaves. Here's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Okay. Because Baby Doll is still hanging around. Oh, that's despite, right. <laughs> despite being Baby Doll a- got on the van with them and is just. Been with them doing nothing for yeah. the rest of the movie, uh, and barely having any lines. She has one bit where she gets her biggest bit she of dialogue. She talks to Ellen and she's like, "Hey, I, I, I try to write songs like you, and I just can't do it. The rhymes and everything." No, and Ellen's like, "I don't write my songs." And, and she's but, like, and "But you make them your own. You, when you sing them, you make them your own." And Ellen's like. I guess. Ellen, I don't feel too bad about Ellen. Ellen has a lot going on, and she doesn't need to be, like, trying to placate yeah. a fangirl right now. So, so Baby Doll's still there. Yeah. And Tom Cody comes in, and he says, she opens the door, <laughs> and he says to her, what the hell are you still doing here? <laughs> and as if Baby Doll realizes she has no point in the film, she's like, Hey, I'll see you guys later. Uh, yeah, and then she's just gone. She's gone. It's like, bye, baby doll. Thanks for being part of the movie. I don't think she even shows up during the climax. No. Yeah. She serves Which, no fucking point. And in the climax, every character comes back except for Ed Bagley Jr. and it's, baby doll. Fuck. Maybe they got married. <laughs> she, <laughs> maybe that's oh why they weren't there. God. They met and they fell in love. What the fuck? Um, anyway, but yeah, he goes up to see Ellen before she leaves, and this is when I realize, is during the scene I realize that there's a fourth movie they're remaking. I'll get into it in a second. Uh, he Back he, to the Future. Uh, yes. They're pre-making They're it. pre-making that, yes. Billy the Fish tries to pay Tom, and, and he like, takes... no, he here's ta- the thousand I owe McCoy. Yes. The rest I'm going to throw in your face. Throw in your face. And he doesn't apologize to Ellen in this scene, but he ta- he 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 throws the money back at at Billy, and he goes up to her and says that uh, he really loved her, and basically just throws the blame for the relationship ending entirely on her, which she did she did end it, yeah. but still, and then fucking walks right out of there, and this is enough. For Ellen, him throwing the money back, even though she didn't get an apology, is enough for her to be like right back on the Tom train. She runs out and meets him in the rain outside. It's a sad scene, so it's yeah. raining. Uh, says like, "What could I have done? What? Why? What could I have done to? What did I do that was wrong?" And he doesn't answer her. They just make out in the rain, and then they have sex. And she's like, uh, "Let Let's run away together." And I realized it's the Quiet Man. Okay, I've uh, never seen The Quiet Man. Again, just like we were with Michael uh, Paré, he's trying to recreate 
fucking John Wayne. Yes. In this relationship, he's trying to recreate the dynamic between John Wayne and Marine O'Hara. What with the and since you don't know uh, the Quiet Man, I won't get into it. But like, it's I think you mean the Quiet Man. But the relationship is she, she's this firebrand that needs to be put in her place. Gotcha. There's this thing about like the, the the miscommunication between them is about money and him getting the money and then throwing it away is how they get back together the big scene where they kiss is in the rain and here's the thing about the quiet man um the quiet man is a classic movie that i love the relationship in that movie is toxic and rapey and it only works because that movie was released in like 52. Yeah. This movie is released in 84, even as much as the 80s had a fucking hard on for the 50s. We've moved on. Stop that. Uh but yeah. So that's 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 why this relationship is so fucked up because they're trying to recreate a ro- relationship from a movie that had a relationship that didn't fucking work in the first place. But yes, um Ellen and Billy have sex. She wants to run away with Tom. And Tom is immediately over the relationship. He's won the argument, and now he's done. Pays McCoy the money, actually apologizing to McCoy. Yep. Because he cares more about McCoy than he cares about Ellen, apparently. Uh, And then he asks McCoy for relationship advice. McCoy says that she used to be in love with a guy who treated her bad... And then she ends it with, of course, that was before, before I was, was a soldier, soldier, which is the bit that you were talking about. Yes, where soldier, code for... Soldier is definitely code there. Um, but yes, uh, Tom enlists uh, McCoy's help for something he, I don't want to do. He takes Ellen on a train ride, saying they're running away, and then literally clocks God her in the damn. fucking head. Yeah, no. Clocks her in the fucking That's head. That's definitely a throwback to Westerns. Oh, where it was yeah. Just like... I need to knock this broad out yeah. so I can do what's best for her. Exactly. Yeah. Very. Again. Very. The quiet man just dragging Maureen O'Hara through the fucking sheep shit on the Irish countryside to show her that 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 you're you you listened. Uh, man, the quiet man has so many problems. Yeah. He knocks her out and leaves her with McCoy, uh, so he can go back into town and face off with Raven. He can't, but he can't get back on the train that he wants to because the bombers have set fire to the train tracks. Yep. Uh, which and this is, is not really important. It's not really important because he just shows up later anyway, but At, whatever. Yeah, the showdown. We have learned that he can teleport from earlier, yes. so. But the Raven and his two, uh, the Raven and his two bombers arrive in town for the high noon showdown. And uh, Raven summons the bombers. Oh, wait a second. The cops okay. come to try and arrest him, and when Raven realizes the deal isn't being adhered to, he summons the bombers. With an air horn that is clearly just covered in tape and is like spray painted bronze. Yeah. But it looks like this weird steampunk thing. Yes. And it's an amazing character flourish that makes no fucking sense. It's no, but is my favorite thing. It's a wonderful prop. It's one of those like little details that makes this world feel its own thing. Uh, like you wouldn't find that anywhere else. Like even a movie actually set in the fifties or the twenties, yeah. no one no. has that. shit. No one has this fucking bronze air horn <laughs> that they use that they use to summon the gang. Yeah, it's fucking brilliant, and it's fucking Raven Shaddix. It's Raven Shaddix all, all the way over. down. <laughs> That's my favorite John Green book is Raven Shaddix all the way down. It's a quite big departure from his usual style. Billy, in an uncharacteristic act of selflessness, or maybe just because he's. 
He's Again, the hero of this he's movie. He's the most powerful human on earth. He's the he's the hero of the movie for himself. He is like in the diner, I think, and sees that Raven Shaddix is about to cause trouble, sees this army forming behind him, busts out the door, stomps with all the authority of uh, the fucking king of the universe right and up again, into Raven's this is fucking Rick face. Moranis. Yes, right up into <laughs> short, tiny Rick Moranis, right up to Raven Shaddix's face is like, hey, buddy, get the fuck out of my town. <laughs> Again, doesn't say that, but that's that's the vibe. That's the vibe. That's, that's the, the energy. Vibe. And Raven just, I think, like, just full 300 kicks Rick Moranis to the so. curb. Knocks Rick Moranis right down. But uh, uh, Tom and, Cody shows up in short order. Uh, well, Clyde is there to Clyde, see what was going to happen. Yes. And the, when this happens, when he sees Billy get knocked down, the army show up, we think he's running away. He's not, but he runs off. Oh, he's forming a posse. He's fucking forming a posse, motherfuckers. But yes, Tom apparently regenerated in between scenes because not only does he suddenly have his hot rod back with no explanation, but also he suddenly has sleeves again. Yes. Uh, and he shows up. He takes off his jacket, revealing his sleeves, and he comes out of the car and he marches into the arena. Uh, Raven says, I brought something special just for you, Tom. And Officer Price, in another one of the greatest lines and one of the greatest line deliveries in this movie, <laughs> passes Tom on the way into the to the death pit, into the into the way into the Thunderdome, and he turns to him and says, "Well, my plan went to shit. Let's see how you do. <laughs> Kick his ass." And now we have. I don't. <laughs> this was this tickled me so much. Uh-huh. Every watch. Yeah. It's a sledgehammer fight. Yeah. It's a fucking sledgehammer fight. Yeah. And my only gripe, because some some uh, bomber goon throws them both sledges. Yeah, this is the special weapon that he brought just for his fight with Tom. But I wish this was like somehow more germane to Raven Shaddix. Like, mm-hmm. he executed motherfuckers or he hobbled motherfuckers. We, we saw that the hammer was a thing with him oh, did earlier. We? No, I'm saying that this is what you yes, want. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we, you wish like, that... Like, he's like... There was something involving hammers that was important to him earlier. You called the duel, I choose the weapons. Yeah, there you go, there you go. Uh, but yeah, no, it, I, I do think that that would be great. Like if that were his signature weapon. Yeah, this scene is iconic. It's great. All on its own. It's great. Here's what I was referring to earlier. Okay. Michael Paré is underselling, because he's a fucking dud. Like, yeah. he's trying. Yep. And meanwhile, Willem Dafoe realizes he's up against a dud. Yes. So, Willem Dafoe is overselling like a motherfucker. Yeah, no, this His is... His facial expressions are insane. This is... Uh, I don't watch wrestling, but my friend, my friends who are fans of wrestling, the way that they've described, if you had, like, John Cena or Roman Reigns on one side in the Michael Paré bit versus, I don't know, a good wrestler on the other side yeah. who's just like... Just like the, they know that they yeah, have they're to trying the, to make up for the balance of energy. The where it's face, like, the face has to go over, so the heel has to make it look like these lame ass yeah. moves that they're doing are just the most incredible epic moves uh, ever, and they're just getting wrecked. That's what Willem Dafoe is doing in the yes. scene, and he does it really fucking well. It's it's good. The it's, scene survives on the on the sweat of Willem Dafoe's brow. It does. It's goofy as shit if you're yes. really paying attention to it. This is my third watch, so I was like, yeah, I was this zooming is only, in on that. The first time I watched it, I remember thinking the scene was really lame. The second time I watched it, 
uh, I loved this scene. I loved it the first. I still love it. Yeah. I, I've always loved it because yeah. it's a fucking sledgehammer fight. Yeah. What, where do you? And I think that that is something that I heard that I read somewhere. Walter Hill saying, "Where else are you going to get this?" That's exactly. why I picked it. But just, <laughs> just how much Willem Dafoe is trying to sell this shit. Yeah. And eventually, Tom Cody like disarms him, mm-hmm. and Tom Cody is like, he does the honorable thing where it's like, okay. okay. I'm not going to smash your melon like Gallagher. Yes. I'm going to toss my hammer aside. And again, there's Fucking... this this internal life that Willem Dafoe's character has. You see on his face, the fact that Tom Cody didn't kill him, that's an insult. It's not only... It's, I don't know... That's a, no, not, not from Tom Cody. Tom Cody isn't thinking of it as that. By Willem Dafoe's in, car, Raven Shaddix's internal code of honor, that you do not do. See, I disagree with you. Okay. I think it's more that it's just like, oh... Tom Cody is the dumbest man alive. Because I'm Raven Shaddix, the most dangerous man alive. The, so I'm going to fucking take advantage of this. The way that I read it, he doesn't seem happy that he threw his hammer away. He seems furious. Like, he goes full, See, like... No, he, he, gives, and, like, the, he launches gives out himself. an amazing fucking scream. An amazing, See, I, amazing I, Defoe face and just launches himself in. See, I, again, I took it the other direction sure. where it's just like... Now it's time for my berserker. Now it's time for my second form. You disarmed me, but now I'm becoming more powerful. Yeah, uh, yeah. Raven Shaddix goes into a rage in D and D terms, and uh, he's going to be rolling. He, he fucking and then he rolls some new attacks, uh, yeah. and he, he rolls an unarmed attack. Also, during this fight, while they're fighting, Clyde shows up with, with the, the posse. posse. He's gathered together a whole bunch of street toughs. They all have their 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 rifles, and they all get get together. They now we have a standing army as well. Facing and now up here's where it's the here's bikers. where I was like, I know how this ends, mm-hmm. but just like okay. There's cops. Mm-hmm. There's an armed gang. Yeah. And now there's an armed civilian militia. Yeah. This is going to become a bloodbath right. that will take years to sort out. Right. And uh, but, but it doesn't. It doesn't. So uh, there, the end of this fight is is great. Um, Tom beats the shit out of Raven until he's until Raven is literally just sitting, standing there doing the Mortal Combat, waiting for the special move. Yeah. Wobble, and then Tom goes up to him and lightly shoves him, and he just crumples again in a scene that Walter Hill. Lo- Probably loves the Quiet Man, and he took yeah. a lot from the fight scene between John Wayne and I forget the other actor, Victor McLagan, I think is the actor, the other actor's name from that movie, which is also famously the inspiration for the fight scene from uh, They Live. They Live, but uh, yeah, the bikers not wanting a war and out of respect for Tom's victory, they like the warrior Jesus code. Christ, they bear him away. Yep, they they pick up Raven and they leave town peacefully, uh, leaving they they they've the the. Rules of the combat were exactly if they it goes allowed, back to like the 1950s ideals, the Western ideals. If of they like, allowed Raven his shot at Tom Cody, whatever the outcome, they were going to leave them in peace. And since they abided by that, in the end, they're going to leave. Uh, they've they have gotten rid of the Cavendish gang for now. Uh, and uh, yeah, and you were hoping for more of a Dark Knight Rises sort of like War in the City kind of thing. I wasn't hoping for that. I was just like, if this happened in real life, mm-hmm. there would be dead bodies. Everywhere, yes, yeah, and like everybody would be shooting at everyone. Oh yes, absolutely. But now we we get one last concert. We get one last concert, including what I think is probably the biggest hit. Oh, it of the movie. absolutely is. You yeah. will hear this in supermarkets. Yeah, the Sorrells do an amazing number, mm-hmm. and these gents are all just like 
character actors. Yes. But they do amazing fucking choreography. And we know that from Walter Hill that they didn't rehearse very much. So this is yeah. all very like the song I can dream about choreography. You. The song I can dream about you. I can dream, dream about, about you. Yeah. If I can't hold you tonight. That big that big uh hit that you've heard on every uh the 80s, 90s and now station yeah. is uh, is from this fucking movie. Now again, much like much like Countdown to Love, this mm-hmm. was recorded by Fred Winston. Yes. But and I think he had a backing band with him for this cuz this is a big doo-wop number. Oh yeah, yeah. Um this was written by a man named Dan Hartman. Mm-hmm. And Dan Hartman did some sort of shady contract shit. Yeah. All perfectly legal because it's a contract. But yes. he was sort of a dick about it. He was mm-hmm. big in the music scene before this. But he was like, okay, on the soundtrack, it's going to be my vocals. Yeah. Not Fred Winston's. Fred Winston can be in the movie, but I get to be in the track that's going to be, get the widest distribution. Yes. And it is very hard to find on, it is impossible as far as I've seen. Yeah. To find like even just this scene of the movie. Yeah. So you can watch the amazing choreography these men are doing. Yeah. No, they're, re- they're really this doing the choreography the pretty well. Best fake bands I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, I would love to see these dudes in concert. Right. No, I would, I mean like, Fucking uh, this band, L- especially if they were opening for Ellen Aim and the Attackers, exactly. I would love that. And I, I, I actually love uh, I Can Dream About You much more than I like the ending song. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the ending song more with each watch. Yeah. But it's still, it's not as strong as Nowhere Fast. Nothing is as strong and, as Nowhere Fast. And I Can Dream About You has that fucking amazing choreography and the amazing yes. energy of these men. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so Tom connects with Billy. Uh, backstage before heading out. Billy is now the manager of the Sorrells in, in real life. Yes. Uh, not just in lies. And Billy's telling Tom, like, hey, you and Ellen, I understand there's something there. And, like, Bill, Billy's Billy's kind of uh, turned over a new leaf. He's like, oh, sure. Well, that, Billy's that, like, just, I'm, again. I'm going to be respectful. Billy's the fucking hero of his own movie where he's yeah, like, absolutely. I don't need to compete with you. Yeah, exactly. You want Ellen? Take Ellen. Yeah. I'm not going to be like, a jealous cuck. Sure. And but Tom is like, hey, uh Ellen needs you and 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 Billy says, Yeah, I know she needs me. She wants you <laughs> Which is full Billy. But he he says, Yeah, uh Ellen, I'm gonna leave Ellen and you can explain to her why, because I'm Tom Cody the worst. Yes. Uh but he he leaves and runs into Ellen. Uh Ellen doesn't get a say in her personal life. In fact, again, the reason why Tom was so mad at her earlier is because she decided to make a decision about her own personal life and that's not allowed. Uh but yeah, uh they they leave, they have a last kiss goodbye, and then Ellen Plays us out with the song "Tonight Is What It, it means, means to Be, be Young," uh, also written by Jim Steinman. Simon with the same sort of meatloaf vibes to it. Again, not yes. as good as "Nowhere Fast," but still pretty great. It, it's I enjoy it more the more I listen to. Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, uh, it, of course it is. It's a Jim the, Steinman. The number. only line I can always remember is a. Uh, and a boy is the next best thing to an angel. Oh God, yeah, it's it's again. I think it, much like nowhere fast. But this is this is another sort of like a big thesis, sweeping thesis yeah, statement like on the movie as well because it's uh, whereas yeah, nowhere it's fast the is, high school drama and shit. Yeah, like this. This is a world where there are almost no adults. There are like maybe five adults in the whole movie. Everyone's a teenager. But I still love this sequence because one, the cinematography 
the concert cinematography is on point. The Sorrells come back out. Yeah, they're, they're acting as backups with the face to face. It's fucking incredible. They're dancing a they're little doing bit. Dance they're, choreography in the background. Yeah, and I'm like, it, it's it's great. I would love. Uh, I would just love if there were a fake concert film of just the Sorrells and oh Ellen Aim. Absolutely, because it's shot so amazingly and like yeah. the backlighting, the smoke, the lasers. It's also fucking good. It's so good. Um, but and yeah. so much fist pumping. So much fist pumping. Everyone just fist pumping it's, all the time. It's the motherfucking 80s. Uh, Tom and McCoy leave town together in what is now McCoy's hot rod. Yes. She she stole it. That's And that's the end of the, of the film. Uh, a couple of things before we wrap. Uh, Streets of Fire was intended to be the first in a projected trilogy, like we said, called the... The overall title was going to be The Adventures of Tom Cody. The titles for the other two movies in the trilogy were... Tom Cody Against the World Crime League. (laughs) Exactly. No. The Far City and Cody's Return. Mm. From Larry Gross about the night that they found out that the movie hadn't done so well. Uh, Joel got off. The, Joel Silver got off the phone with Universal and said, "We're dead." Oh. We sat down. I remember in a little park in downtown LA, and we started giggling in that way people do when things are terrible. <laughs> There's a song in the movie called "Tonight Is What It Means to Be Young," and I remember in the park Joel saying, "Today is what it means to be dead." Oh, clever. <laughs> Uh, and an unofficial sequel was eventually made, as I mentioned earlier, called Road to Hell, which was made in 2008, directed by Albert Piune, mm. and with Paré playing Cody and Deborah Van Valkenburg. <laughs> Sorry. Who, that's all right. And Deborah Van Valkenburg, whoever that is, playing uh, his sister Reva Cody. Well, involved... I think she played Reva in the original. Oh, was that? Okay, so, so Reva comes back. That's good. But it's about him protecting Ellen's daughter. Uh, and Ellen's daughter performs both Nowhere Fast and Tonight is What It Means to Be Young, gotcha. which, of course, in a movie where Michael Pere is old as shit, no longer has any meaning. <laughs> but uh, that is Streets of Fire. Any final thoughts uh, about that, uh, Brad? No, I think we covered everything pretty much. I love this film. You should definitely watch it. It's yeah. so much fun. It's, it's so much again, fun. Again, like... Like we talked about in Holy Mountain, you can't say most unique or most singular. No. But these are movies that make you want to be like, yeah, nothing is more unique than this. Uh, it, it's so, like, you're not going to find another film like this. It, maybe. Maybe more so than Holy Mountain, but it's... Yeah. With this You're more music, likely to find a movie like this than Holy Mountain, but still But for not. it to hit on all cylinders yeah. with the music, the cinematography, the the... Mm -hmm. production design it's not going to happen this movie is what this show and the your entire concept of the hunt is about yeah it's about finding the shit that's not not necessarily like the most artsy or the most or the most insane or the most most insane or the most outre it's just finding that good shit that nobody fucking talks about different and that's and that's not fucking hits this movie is not the warriors it's not uh fucking uh a Die Hard or 48 no. Hours. This movie it's is... It's a no- rock and roll fable. This movie is nothing but Streets of Fire. Exactly. And that is... In, that is special. That's, exactly. And that's worthy and of celebration. And it's even more special that it collapsed in on itself and was not a huge hit. Like, yeah. this is a big swing. Yeah. And the big swings that don't connect mm-hmm. are my favorite because you took that fucking swing. Yeah. And it didn't pay off, but we got... What we got. We got Streets of Fire, and yes. that is, you can never take that away. Yeah. You can't. Until legally, 
according to the Constitution, right. you cannot. The Constitution of Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in America you can do whatever you want. Yeah, uh, but yes. So uh, that is Streets of Fire, and uh, thanks Catch very you much. Later. Thanks so very much for listening. Bye bye.